their imagination and makes them feel special while drawing them deeper and deeper into the bowels of El Diablo. Observe the previously unobservable. I'm attacking the darkness! (laughs) (laughs) Roll the dice to see if I'm getting drunk! Yeah, you are! Are there any girls there? Yeah! Anyone can play. I don't really know the rules. (laughs) Listen, there aren't any rules. It's a game of the imagination. Oh, okay. This is your character sheet. Your name is Titania. I don't know what any of this stuff means. I'll help you. I'm the dungeon master. I control worlds, universes. Okay, you guys can talk to each other now if you want. Hello, and welcome to the inaugural episode of DC Roleplaying, the Hero Points Podcast. A proud member of the Fire and Water family of podcasts, the official network of FirestormFan.com and AquamanShrine.com. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag. Along with me is my co-host, the Honorable Siskoid from Siskoid's Blog of Geekery. Welcome aboard, sir. Hey, Shag. I'm I'm really excited. I know. I am so excited about this. I'm sure the people at home are scratching their heads going, Huh? What is this? I'm not, I'm not Rob. <laughs> Je ne suis pas Rob. <laughs> no, folks. We have secretly replaced your favorite Rob Kelly with this brew of Siskoid. And we're going to see what people say. No. <laughs> we are recording a sort of a, a different podcast. This is a different show. This show is independent of the Fire and Water podcast. It's independent of the Who's Who podcast. It's its own show. It is the Hero Points podcast, where Siskoid and I are going to talk about one of our particular passions, which is role-playing games in the DC universe. Right. Rob is not cool enough for that. <laughs> what we're saying. As I push up my glasses and adjust my pocket protector. He would call us nerds, but, you know... <laughs> he lives in a an underwater glass house. Now, folks, if you're not a role player, I think you're going to be okay with this show. I hope. That's our goal. Our goal is to make this show sort of approachable to anyone who might have a passing interest in role-playing, whether you have role-played or not, or whether you even own the particular systems we talk about. Really what we're going to focus on, rather than the technical, like, Superman is supposed to have strength 50 and not strength 25, blah, 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 which we actually may have that conversation, by the way. We will. But, <laughs> We're going to focus more on the nostalgia of the box sets and some of the things uh, in the role-playing modules and the different aspects of the game, things that made the game great that we really liked or things that we thought were amiss. In the end, again, it's it, our goal is to make it interesting to anybody, whether you're a role-player or not. This, again, this will not be a game mechanics podcast. If you're looking for that kind of debate, there are some great podcasts on the Internet out there. There's some message boards out there that cover this kind of stuff. Power to them, but that's not in our DNA. Sorry, folks. And if you have any questions, you just, you know, there will be listener feedback, right? (laughs) Yeah, I would hope so. Yeah. So... It's fair to mention the frequency of this show. This show is going to be somewhat infrequent, kind of like the Power Records episodes we do of Fire and Water. Yeah, this is not going to be a monthly thing, but it's going to be whenever we feel like put one out. When we have a real interest in talking some gaming, we'll do it. So, you know, hopefully we'll get a few of them out a year. And, yeah, we'll definitely cover feedback on the show. Right. And we'll be doing it half in French. <laughs> okay, right? folks. That's uh, the deal, isn't it? Um, if you're reading them and answering them, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the most astonishing thing. My friend Siskoid here is bilingual, folks. He is a French-Canadian, and he speaks perfect English. I didn't even know that English was his second language until after we've been talking for a while. I'm probably going to make a lot of Canadian bacon jokes. That's, I'm just warning you in advance. I hate Canadian bacon. It's terrible. <laughs> I don't call know it ham. Of... Just call it ham, for God's sake. Yeah, wrong? what part of the pig is it? Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> There's only one kind of bacon. There, there you go. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Bacon is meat candy. Anyway, by the way, if you want to get up on the social medias, please do so and use the hashtag pound 
FW Podcast. FW Podcast is, even though this is a different show, it is part of the Family Fire and Water Family Podcast, so that is the best way to get the word out there, folks. And if you want to send us an email, by the way, as we're going through this, please send that to firewaterpodcast at comcast.net. So feel free to drop us a line, and as Siskoi just blatantly lied to you, we'll respond in French. <laughs> Today, we are going to tackle the very first DC Comics-related role-playing item, which was a gorgeous blue, what we call the blue box. The, the blue box, the first edition box set that came out in 1985. Now, just to sort of set the stage for you, though, this wasn't the first superhero role-playing game to ever come out. There was a few, there was a few before it, actually there were several before, but the ones that are probably best known are are a game called Vid, uh, Villains and Vigilantes, which came out in 1979, which is hung around for a long, long time. Is it? I know Palladium picked it up. Is it still around? It is. Uh, they've uh, re-released it recently. Wow. So I, okay. I've got friends who play it. Yeah. All right. Champions, which came out in 1981, and back then, unless you had a slide ruler and were willing to play <laughs> second by second, um, you really weren't going to get very far in a campaign. But now I think they have an online version of that one. Superworld, which I'm not t- I'm not too terribly familiar with these next two. Superworld and Golden Heroes. Those came out in 83 and 84, but they're b- pretty popular game systems. Then the big one, the first one that really came out from a major publishing house was Marvel Superheroes role-playing game, which came out in 1984, and then they uh, released an advanced edition in 1986. Now, I, I bought and I played this one. Did you ever play it? I uh, played it a little bit. It, it didn't really turn my crank, but it was like it was the TSR. Yeah. It was by TSR. Are the makers of D&D, so of course we got it. It had great books. I mean, it, it did the whole Marvel Universe uh, deluxe kind of thing, the the, the those encyclopedias. Yeah. Uh, so DC Heroes game would eventually do that with Who's Who, eventually. Marvel was first where they had these big, sick books that were uh, basically followed Marvel the, the Marvel Universe uh, deluxe formula, but with stats and with uh, how to play them and, and whatnot. So that, that was a great product. Mm-hmm. But the game itself... Uh, um, I don't think we played more than one or two sessions. How about you yourself? Remember, <laughs> we uh, we used to um, remember how they. I don't mean to spend a lot of time on Marvel, but I just got to share this funny story. Remember how it had like ratings, like all the the scores had adjectives, sort of like Marvel Comics. You know, Feeble, average, right. yeah. exactly. Poor, good, you know, excellent. We started making up our own. Like you know, there was uh, we we added spectacular, fantastic, web of. Yeah, things like that. So, <laughs> anyway, but now we get to the important thing. Then, in 1985, came out from a little company called Mayfair Games, DC Heroes Role Playing Game. Now, um, I can't promise this, but I'm pretty sure it came out in September, and I'll go into more about that later. Uh, I couldn't find a definitive release date on it, which I, I'm real finicky about those things. Anyway, so 1985 saw the release of the Blue Box that we're going to be talking about today, first edition. It is fair to just jump forward a little bit in the future. There were a lot of other role-playing games, but just so you get an idea in D.C., after they released this box set, there was a second edition, which came out in 1989, again from Mayfair. There was a third edition by Mayfair that came out in 1993. Mayfair lost the license, and then another company called West End Games picked it up, and they released the D.C.U. role-playing game in 1999, and they held the license for a number of years when they lost it, and then it... This, the adventures, if you will, were picked up again by DC Adventures by a company called Green Ronin, and uh, which is also really sort of a, was a backdoor pilot for Mutants and Masterminds version three. Those are game systems that we definitely at some point would like to talk about, but today the focus is first edition box set. Ta-da. Now, 
Now, Cisco, you mentioned you played Marvel a little bit. Why don't you tell us sort of like what, what's your role-playing pedigree, for lack of a better term? For some reason, I fell into it and became a game master right off the bat when I was a teenager. And if I've played more than a dozen games as a player, I, that's probably, I'm probably exaggerating it. I mean, I've been a game master and I'm always a game master and I, I don't think I have any real fun when I'm not a game master, I, I suppose. I, uh, so I just heard the words control freak, I think. Is that what I just well, heard? It's quite possible. <laughs> There's plenty of other evidence in my life. Um, <laughs> I came from a small town, so uh, we didn't have any stores that uh, had any role-playing products. I eventually heard about it from, you know, older kids uh, who had D&D, probably Dungeons & Dragons, but we didn't have any of those products. And when I was in ninth grade, we decided we wanted to play anyway. So I had a couple books that I'd bought when I went to, to larger towns, and I didn't even know what they were for. I had, like, a monster <laughs> manual, and I had a deities and demigods, you know, because I was interested in monsters and mythology. Mm. And there was all these stats, and there's no – I had no idea what they were for. I thought, well, is this some sort of computer game that I can't afford? Uh, <laughs> you know. I didn't know. I had that and Grimtooth traps. That's what that's what I had. I read up on it. No internet at the time, of course. It was like the mid '80s. I bought a book that was about role playing games. I mean, that's that's how it started. <laughs> like and a how, we, how to role play book. Yeah. What, what it was about and what people did. And okay, so I got some friends together that were interested. Uh, somebody gave me these polyhedral dice. They were already, you know, the you can see the numbers on them. They were so old. <laughs> had, you know, numbers were rubbed off, and that's all we had. And so I, we created our own game. It was like, it was homebrew. It was, looking back, it was terrible. I mean, it was unbalanced. You, you, characters would, would grow in power immeasurably. And all it was was like well, taking terms from the books that I had and, you know, well, what we thought it might be. <laughs> okay. And we played like that for years. But eventually... So you, just, there, you just made up your own game. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You're an incredibly creative young man. Well, well, we had to, eh? So <laughs> eventually there's a hobby store that opened uh, in the area, and that had a lot more, a lot more books, uh, a lot more games. And it's like opened my eyes, and there's not just fantasy, there's not just Dungeons & Dragons, which we weren't really playing in any, in any case. Uh, and I started buying stuff from other product lines, uh, other genres, we started playing things that were, uh, we were still in a big fantasy campaign in our homebrew or whatever it was. Uh, we started, try, we tried Shadowrun, we tried Marvel superheroes, we tried, uh, for a while we were using Arcanum, which was like the ancestor of Talislanta. I don't know if you remember that one. No. Uh, yeah, it, well, it happened. And, <laughs> and, and DC Heroes was one of the first games that uh, I bought at that hobby store. So that was an important, uh, DC Heroes is really in an important piece in my development. And, and from there, well, university started playing DC Heroes with, with people. And one of the things that I did a lot is, uh, recruit from people that had never gamed, had never role played, that were from other, you know, that would never have role played normally. Girls. I think, I think girls, shag, shag. Girls were role playing. You meant the word subvert, not 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 convert, subvert. See, it's, corrupt. You're, corrupt. Yes, it's, you're having trouble with the English language. I think you're not getting yeah. your words right. No, that's it. I, I mean, it is, it is <laughs> second language. So, you had it, girls. You know, it's it's funny you mention that. Like one of my first groups had girls in the role playing group too. Yeah. No. I mean, I, I, and I'm not discriminating. Obviously, it's just the the typical gamer is not is not a, someone who has touched a girl. So. <laughs> 
that, that's the reputation, isn't it? That's the, yes, it is. That's yes, it is. So at, in university, we played quite a lot of DC heroes, and I thought, and uh, we'll talk about it later. But obviously, it was it was something that was easily applicable to people who didn't game. It wasn't Dungeons and Dragons. It wasn't so so mathematical, and it's you know I don't know the rules, and you don't need to know the rules to work superheroes, in a sense, because you know you can do anything almost. So that helped, and uh, so we played other games, Torg, Toon. Planescape, Star Trek. We tried a lot of stuff. Um, I'd say my biggest campaigns were, or games were Dream Park, which was a really obscure little game from... Uh, I remember that one. Yeah. Played that with dozens of people over several, several years with different groups. Uh, I, I ran that for a long while because it, because you always were doing one shots. Uh, so people had, you know, had, couldn't come to, to the, to a game every week. Uh, it was easy to you know, just pick up a game and dream park was good for that. Play some GURPS and then DC heroes came up again. So I had another like pretty intense group of DC heroes for a while. This is in the two thousands. So it's not so far away. Then I fell back onto what I'm doing now, which is uh, short series, like mini series where we'll play, eight sessions over uh, a summer or over uh, a certain period. Again, some GURPS, Savage Worlds is in there, Doctor Who, of course. <laughs> Two seasons down in our campaign. Uh, <laughs> but then we'll alternate with another game. And right now we're playing uh, DC Adventures, so we're playing the, the latest DC RPG. Hmm. Yeah, that's what I guess that's my pedigree. <laughs> All right, awesome. Um, well, for me, I, I'll, I'll tell you right now, I would probably fall under the definition of a lapsed gamer because I have not role-played actively in a group. It's probably been about three or four years, and I'll explain some of this in a little bit. So for me, I'm, I, I don't know if I qualify myself as a hardcore gamer. So in fact, if we've got any hardcore gamers listening, you know, say, oh, these guys don't know what they're talking about, but you know what, we're the ones who got off our butts and made a podcast, so there we go, we win. So, again, a lapsed gamer, and I, I also, I worked in a comic shop for a number of years, so I was exposed to a whole, we sold a lot of role-playing games, exposed to a whole bunch of role-playing games that I never actually got around to playing, but have a vague passing knowledge of, like Dream Park's a perfect example of a game that I was aware of, even though I never played it, simply because it was in the store, I had to talk to people about it, and everything like that. My first game like just about everybody else's, was at least it grew up in the 80s, was Dungeons & Dragons. Didn't play it for long. Went over to a kid's house one night, and we were hanging out, and that's what he wanted to do. So we made characters, and I made uh, your most boring, typical elf you've ever heard of. Ripped off every major, you know, theatrical idea you could think of, and I don't know that I really played it again for like 10 years. My, my first experience of role-playing wasn't something that really grabbed me. So, But the first thing that really did get my attention was that Marvel superheroes role-playing game. We played that. We, we got into it. You know, I remember the, the first module had Dr. Octopus and a giant robot, and we did that. And, and there's something about, like you said, superhero role-playing game. I guess because it's sort of set in the quote-unquote real world. So it's more of an understandable setting. You don't have to sit there and go, well, I don't know what the difference between an orc and a goblin is. And quite frankly, I still don't. <laughs> um, but in a superhero role-playing game, I know what a skyscraper is. I know what a car is. You know, I know what a plane is. It's, it's, it's sort of based in the real world, so you can sort of glom onto it pretty easily. And you see, everyone's seen superhero movies or cartoons. You know, you kind of get an idea. So Marvel is my, my, my real entry point. My, uh, you know, your first taste is free kid kind of thing. And then, uh, I got the DC role-playing game and that was really, when it all clicked for me, this first version, I didn't play the first version a lot. It really was more so with the second edition that it really clicked for me. But by this point, I was in. 
So uh, just to go through these real quickly, because I don't want to spend too much time on it, I ran campaigns in the first edition, second edition, and third edition. Uh, I ran campaigns in the West End Games DC uh, role-playing game. In fact, that's probably my longest experience. I role-played with one group for about nine years, uh, solid, playing the DC DCU uh, role-playing game from West End Games and eventually switched over to using me and some masterminds, but it was one group for that long. And I still hang out with those guys. We've just all given up on role-playing. We now just play board games and stuff because we're old and lazy. No one has time to design adventures anymore. I own the DC Adventures game from Green Ronin. Haven't played it yet. Now, going back into the other ones, Mutants and Mastermind, I played the first and second edition, ran a campaign in there. Star Wars, first, second, and revised editions from West End Games, ran a very, uh, a couple very extensive campaigns in second edition and revised. Did a, uh, played a campaign of Torg, love Torg. Played a campaign in Savage Worlds. Deadlands, I played a few times. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles from Palladium. I loved that game. I didn't play it a lot, but I had a lot of fun with it. Time Lord, which came out by Virgin Publishing, which was a Doctor Who game, uh, really uh, didn't get a chance to get a big campaign off the ground, but did play around with it a little bit. GURPS by Steve Jackson. Mage from White Wolf. Had a couple of encounters with that. And the other one that I'm proud to say, you mentioned earlier the Doctor Who role-playing game. The Doctor Who Adventures in Time and Space by Cubicle 7. I am was actually a playtester for that game. Uh, me and some I, friends. I was impressed. I was impressed when I heard. And uh, and my name is in the book to this day. Yeah. I'm in, I'm in the box set. So woo. So that's yeah. my claim to fame. That's my uh, my tiny little impact on the Doctor universe. I added a couple of ad- ideas they used, and uh, I feel like I've contributed to Doctor Who, and I can die now. And I thank you because it's uh, one of my favorite games ever. Ah, you're welcome. It was all me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to do with those you know, silly designers and things like that. Just just this one playtesting guy. <laughs> where where does your passion for role playing come from? Well, that, that's well. I mean, I mean, it's been so long. I, mean, I was fourteen. That's almost it's <laughs> almost thirty years ago, Shaq. <laughs> I know, dude. I know. Yo. Crazy. Yeah. Well, I think I've always been, um, you know, an, an imaginative kid, right? And interested in genre stuff, whether fantasy, sci-fi, comics. We brought, you probably have a similar background. Uh, well, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Although, if people are are thinking we're we're too alike and we're getting along too too well, as compared to you and Rob, um, I hope people. You know, there was a clue in there when we told when we said our pedigrees. I played some Star Trek, and Shag played some Star Wars, and that's a major, major divide. I mean, we hate each other because of this. Why don't you live I mean, long and, oops, why don't you not live long and die? There it is. Yeah, whatever. I'd quote Star Wars, but pff, nothing's quotable in there. Oh, uh, my gosh. I'm going to Toshi Station to pick up some power converters. <laughs> what? what? You know, you're quoting Kino Battle. So, whatever. Uh, I have a bad feeling about this, and, I mean, that that that's supposed to be a quote? Yeah, real literate. So, Anyways, yeah, my passion for it is just, you know, being being a kid and wanting to do it and then doing it and having fun with it and making friends over it, making enemies over it. Um, it just becomes part of you. But uh, I think soon enough, I mean, it's, it's weird for me because soon enough, that was ninth grade. By 10th grade, I was joining an improv league at school. And that's something that I worked on. I'm still working with improv groups today. I mean, it's it's... It's probably my core identity is improv player. Wow. Uh, improv referee, improv coach, improv teacher. I, I you know, it's, it's, that's what I do. It's, it's, it's how I feel. It's how it was. It's where my values come from. That's, that's who I am. No, it is. It is. Well, oh, wait a minute. Who you are is just making stuff up and changing who you are at every, any given moment. Well, it's, it's about adaptability. It's about teamwork. It's about, I mean, I don't, I, don't even, I don't even know who you are anymore, man. Well, I don't know. I don't know who I am. I'm, I'm making it up as, as I go along. But, <laughs> but 
but a lot of my players are are improv players. My my role players are improv players. A lot of them, most of them now today. I mean, characters come naturally, and the games are a, a lot goofier than I'd like because you know you got people that like to do comedy at the table. Mm-hmm. But it's entertaining as hell. So, <laughs> so that's it. that's the whole point of it. Yeah. So the, the passion's all mixed up in that. It's about creating characters, and as game master, you get to create more characters than than the players do, obviously. So it's all part of creating stories. Creating stories. That's that's where the passion comes from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Isn't For it? Me, well, it, yes, it, it's the creating a story. Well, that's kind of the control freak answer. Uh, I enjoy being part of the story, not just not just creating it and controlling it and demanding people's destiny go a certain way. Jeez, I tell you. Um, nah, I'm just goofing For me, it's, it's a... I don't know that I can put my finger on what guides my passion, but I can, I can sort of point out, like, how I got there. It happened to me at at an even more formative age than you. I was 12 years old when I started role-playing. And that was, again, the the Dungeons & Dragons and Marvel set. But when when it all clicked for me, really, again, was the DC set. I I had just turned, I guess, 13 years old. And I had a wad full of cash. And we went to the comic book store. The comic shop owner was a complete asshat. And my mom said, we're leaving. And we left and went across town to another shop. So we go in there. I had never been in the shop, and he had all kinds of stuff I'd never seen before, but he had just gotten in the DC role-playing game. Like, it was, I want to say it was brand spanking new. I was just totally drawn to it. I was so interested. I think I had just started, no, I hadn't even read Crisis yet. I'm sorry. But I was reading Firestorm and things like that. And so I found this game. It really spoke to me. So when I, when I bought it, and I read through it, and I felt like, where you were kind of saying it's about the story, for me, I felt like I could live the comics. I felt like comic books translated to role-playing so well. I felt like by reading, even just reading the book without even starting an adventure, I felt like I was part of it. I felt like I was an integral piece, and I felt like this was a way I could be part of the adventures I like to read about so much. This game system was also really good once I got into it, for me, because personally, I, I like a moderate amount of game crunch, if you will. That's in air quotes. Um, but not to the point where it inhibits gameplay. Like like when you're rolling dice to determine the outcome, I, I want things to move quickly and intuitively. So a lot of times it's just, all right, you know what? I want to be able to figure out the numbers fast. I don't want to waste a lot of time doing all the calculations. And this game is very, very good for this. This game has a great balance. Yeah, I love how the how it's up front. You'll spend some time making the character, and then you, you know, you'll be calculating points and creating the best character you can. And then after that, it's smooth sailing. You've done all the hard work. Yeah. And, and for me, a lot of it, too, came from the relationships I built. And, and maybe that's where – and I'm really trying to answer this question as I go. I don't have a good formal answer for it. So, may, But maybe it's the relationships I built with the people while I was role-playing. I, I had some groups. As I told you the one that went for, like, nine years. Some of those people I'm still very good friends with. Some Like, my best friend in college is the one we did Star Wars all the way through with. I had some of the best times hanging out with these people just laughing our butts off and just having a great time. And even if, like you said, it got a little silly around the table, you know what? As long as we're all having fun, that's 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 what it's all about. Just really, really meant a lot to me. And more recently, my passion for specifically the DC role-playing game has gotten reignited in, in by two things. One, our, our good buddy, our friend of the show, Diablo Frank, who runs Idle Head of Diablo website, he headed up a blog crossover a few years ago. Uh, he called it uh, Mayfairstivus, I think is how you say it. Right. And, and we both participated, I remember. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think that's how, that's how we got to know each other as bloggers. It was could through be. that. Yeah, yeah, I think so. There was something like, I don't know, 
20 or 30 blogs involved in the crossover. There was like something like 60 posts across the sites. Anyway, doing this got me really re-energized for the game. And then another guy named Michael Everett got in touch with me. And he's a big fan of the DC role-playing game to the point where he's collecting a lot of the pieces and a lot of the stuff. And he got in touch with me because I had some of the old newsletters that were sent out by Mayfair. I don't know if you've ever seen any of those or not. I, I have a couple. I have the, like, the last two. Okay. I've, I've actually got... Uh, well, I, I now I have copies. I went ahead and sent Michael my originals because he was so passionate about it, and he's just such a cool guy. But I've but I've got a bunch of them, and they're just it was so cool to be involved with a company was sending you stuff after you bought the product just because you asked for it, and it would tell you know it had tips and things about improving your game or here's some character stats, and of course they promoting new books that were coming up. I mean it was right. it was a, it was an advertising product, but it just it made me feel like I was part of a club. You know, I just I felt really invested in this, and so that's where my passion for the DC role playing game comes from. It's also where the passion for playing comes from and, and game mastering, which I, I kind of like you. I kind of seem to find myself always in the game master role. Overall role playing, it comes down to relationships. So, yeah, you made me sound like a, a railroader, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's like the improv. Ham fisted GM, the Canadian bacon fisted GM. <laughs> yeah, it's the same as improv. I mean, you're creating with other people. I mean, yeah, you know, obviously, but somebody's got to have the hand on the tiller. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but for DC Heroes, for me, it was like, I mean, I, my first, my first was, uh, second edition. Mm-hmm. That was my first, my first full set for, for DC Heroes. So I, I wasn't, I, I, I never even saw the, the first box okay. until, uh, until much later, um, except in, in, in ads. Second edition was like, what, four years later? When I wanted to do, when we started to get sick of the whole, uh, sword and sorcery thing, and I wanted to do superheroes. All I had to go on again, I mean, again, I homebrewed something from a handful of stats, and um, I'm going to put this. I'm going to put this up on my blog okay. uh, today. And it's the. It's a page from. Uh, I have it right here. It's Dragon Magazine number one thirty in February eight eighty eight. So that that dates it. And there's a page in there. That's it's an ad for DC Heroes, and it's like a Daily Planet gaming supplement. This was it looks like it looks like a newspaper page. Awesome. And it's got yeah, and it's got uh, articles that are announced. Um, you know, new DC Heroes RPG staff editor or certain products that are coming out, and a convention here. And there's there's a piece. There's a stats for. Doctor Savannah, <laughs> the Captain Marvel villain. That this is all I had. This is this is what I had here. <laughs> this is it. And I mean, Doctor Savannah's not the guy with the most powers. <laughs> you can imagine. So just little block stats, and he's got gadgetry and scientist weaponry and equipment unknown. Really helpful. <laughs> but from this and from stats, uh, vi- villains and vigilantes also did this. They put stats in the in their ads, and from the Marvel stuff. I had to create my own superhero RPG. I still, I still have the character sheets somewhere. So I just haven't been able to find them. So they're, they're waiting somewhere in the box to, to be found. And then that's how we started playing superheroes. And it was terrible. I mean, it was just terrible. We were, we, we didn't have the rules for it. You can't play superheroes the same way you'd play Dungeons and Dragons. It just doesn't work. Killing everyone and. <laughs> right. Yeah. It takes, you gotta, you gotta think, you gotta approach it differently. Absolutely. Right, and we didn't have that background. We didn't know how to do that. And then, um, and for me, when I went to that hobby store when it opened, the first product I actually bought was the uh, was Don't Ask. It was a ambush bug adventure <laughs> module, and because it's ambush bug, I had to have it. I, right. I was an ambush bug uh, completist. <laughs> 
at the time. Still am, I guess. And, um, and, and that, I mean, we'll probably talk about that adventure somewhere down the line in another podcast because it's insane. It's exactly <laughs> like the Keith Giffen comics. I mean, it's, it's berserk. But it opened up a whole lot of, okay, uh, this is how superhero uh, adventures would work, how uh, interrogation works, how investigation works, even though it's, it's silly and stupid because of Ambush Bug. You know, it's not a dungeon crawl. It's not dungeon-based. So how do you, uh, you know, my young mind had to find out, how do you do adventures that aren't going down into a map and, you know, grinding room after room? How, how, do you, how does that work in a scenario? And that's, that's, that opened up a lot of doors in my head uh, as to how to role play differently and with different genres. And, and that's what really fueled my fire. And the stuff I had with Marvel Adventures, which I had before this, didn't have those elements. I, I didn't have an adventure. I didn't, uh, and I didn't think the, the books really told me how to create them, create those adventures. Mm-hmm. Uh, so really, it's Ambush Bug was my gateway drug to, to this game. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned uh, the different genres of playing. I'll tell you, I actually, I still have a problem with that to this day. Because so much of my role-playing background is in superhero role-playing and Star Wars role-playing. It, it's either punch or shoot. You know I mean? Kind of is what's, you know, of course, there's a lot of subplotting and stuff like that. But when I get to playing like a game like Doctor Who or something like that, it's really hard for me. Because I want to attack, and it's not the way to go about it. So right. I, I, I sometimes struggle running those or playing those. So just give one more quick piece about this. Now, for the first edition when it came out, and I had it, and I played with a buddy of mine named Ravenface quite a bit. And for the most part, I didn't – I was so young when I got the first edition. You know, in, in, at that point, 85, 13 years old. I was a silly middle school kid, so I didn't take it seriously. I mean, we played, and we had a small small campaign, and I'll talk a little bit about some of it later. Not, not too much, because I don't want to – by the way, this is not going to be one of those podcasts where we talk about our characters for hours and hours and hours, because having worked in a gaming store, we, we had a catchphrase, which was, no, I don't want to hear about your character, because there's nothing more boring than listening to someone else talk about their character for 30 minutes about – and you really, frankly, don't care. But yeah, it's, it's the same as listening to pe- people tell you about their dreams. <laughs> it's, it's exactly the right. It's the same. <laughs> it's like, are you, are you done? Can, can we move on? Okay, thanks. Yes, it so, was surreal. Move on. Yeah. To be fair, when I played the first edition, most of my adventures were pretty juvenile. They were real basic. They were, you know, I had an idea, and I put my friend through it, and that was it, and we were done, and we rolled some dice, you know, whatever. It wasn't until the second edition game that I really took it seriously, and I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about that, because I would save that for whenever we cover the second edition game. My first edition, my love and passion for it comes mostly from the game itself, rather than necessarily all the adventures I had playing first edition, if that makes sense. It does to me. Okay. I never, I never did play Don't Ask. <laughs> oh, see, really? Never done see, it? Okay. No, not yet. Okay. <laughs> well, you know what? Uh, these, these nice folks at home have sat here uh, quietly for almost 30 minutes while we waxed on about us. Let's talk about the game system, which is what they're, we promised we'd talk about. Now so, that we've established our cred. Exactly. Yeah, so, or, or lack thereof for me. Folks, we are talking about first edition DC Heroes role-playing game, specifically the first edition Blue Box. I will read you the back. Uh, well, I'm not going to read you all the bullets, but the, the tagline was, here's all you need to be part of the legend. That was really kind of the way they pushed it. They wanted people to think this was, you know, be part of the legend was kind of their, their bit. Now, not necessarily in here, but in some of the advertisements, they even played upon the superpowers, you know, branding. They oh, would yeah. use superpowers branding in some of the stuff. Even though you don't see it here in the game itself, uh, it was an integral part of the promotions. Now, when you open up the blue box, here are the things you would find inside. 
there was this cute little flimsy paper item that was about 16 pages. We called Read This First. If you've ever bought a role-playing box set, you know, there's always a Read This First thing, which kind of tells you if this is the first time you've ever role-played, this is what role-playing is all about. It's a handy little piece, and it's nice, and it gives you a breakdown of the rules and the mechanics. So it was a pretty decent little introduction to role-playing. I reread it in, in anticipation of the show, and I, I learned how to role-play for the first time. came with a module called Titan, A Titan Nevermore. Teen Titans module. Also, inside was a group adventure you could run and a solitaire adventure. And we're going to talk about all these pieces a little more as we go, but I'm just giving you what happens when you open the box. came with a player's manual, which had a really nice Batman cover, which is that probably a Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, you think? That's that's what it looks like. He's got yeah. a lot of pieces in this in this product, yeah. And we'll talk about that throughout the, the the show, but man, some of the art in this is just absolutely gorgeous. They used a lot of great DC stock art. They used a lot of different pieces from the series, uh, and it's it's nice. Player's manual. Uh, you get the game master manual, which is the the largest book in the set. Lots of great information there. The powers and skills book. You get a game master screen, and then you get these great little. Th- character cards. you got 30 of these things. They're about 4 inches by 3 inches. And it's a little handheld card. It's got the character on the front with some of their stats, and on the back it's got more details. But there's, you know, 30 of them. you got, you know, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, you got Firestorm, you got Aquaman, you got Darkseid, you got all these great cards, beautiful art. Gave you something tangible to hold on to. You know, you could hold your character while you were playing. It was neat. You came with 39 little stand-up character counters, which, again, little tiny cardboard characters. They're the same imagery that were on the, the 30 cards that you got. And they came with these little plastic stands they could sit up. You could move them around, set up, you know, so you had a sort of a 3D visual while you were playing. Came with the stands that came with it, and then two 10-sided dice. So you got all that inside the box. Yeah, I wonder how much this sucker retailed for back then. I thought I had that here. Uh, maybe I didn't. But <laughs> yeah, $17 American, which is what, yeah. $97 Canadian or something? At the time, it might have been like 25 <laughs> Right Right now, our, our dollars are pretty even. But back then, uh, you could pay, you had to pay more. But even the adventure modules like 10 bucks. The source books were 20 bucks or so, 15 to 20 bucks, So up through the 80s and 90s. So today, role-playing games are a lot pricier. Yeah. Yeah. Like today, I usually buy them in PDF form on uh, drive through or, what, or whatever. Screw the hard copy because it's like sixty bucks or yeah, so, yeah. It just takes up shelf space anyway. It does, and I've already got a lot of. You know, you used to sell them. I used to buy them a lot. <laughs> I just uh, this weekend had to put together a fourth bookshelf in my home office just to stack trade paperbacks and and crap like that. So. I call that my first year. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, oh. I think I have a near-complete collection of GURPS books, so imagine. That's a sickness, uh, brother. That is a sickness. I know, I know, I know. I've, uh, I've slowed down. This box here, <laughs> to come back to it, <laughs> it's real pretty. We, we won't talk about second edition too much, even though you know it's really uh, almost more familiar, certainly for me. And I think second edition improved on everything except the art. The art in mm. the first edition box is beautiful. It's the, the art and design, is all of it is better better than what they came up with in the second time around. Well, let's touch on let's touch on that a little bit. I know it's in our notes later whatever. Let's do it. I mean, the cover is absolutely breathtaking. It is a George Perez original piece he did just for the cover, drawn by George, inked by Dick Giordano, I think, right? Uh, I think so. Let me check the um their the names little, are on, uh, yeah. names are on here somewhere. I don't remember. Yes, uh, yeah. it is Giordano. Yep. Yep. And the coloring is—it actually looks like it was painted. It does. It's like a watercolor. Or, um, yeah, it's really nice. It's, 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 it's great. It's really great. And Perez was doing. This came out during Crisis. 
Yep. So, you know, he was at the top of his game, really. Just to give you some understanding, this came out, per, by my understanding, again, I have my reasons for suspecting, so I think this came out right around issue 10 of Crisis. So, yeah, Crisis is in full effect, as you said, the water coloring. The, the images of uh, what would assume to be New York City or Metropolis, and you're up amongst the skyscrapers, and there's a huge about-to-be battle between villains and heroes. Superman, Wonder Woman, and Batman are all very prominent in the foreground, and then you've got also in slightly behind them, but still showed off, showcased quite well. You've got John Stewart, Green Lantern, you got Starfire, you got Cyborg, Nightwing, unfortunately Jericho, someone just needs to push him off the top of the, hill, the mountain yeah. or the there's a, building. There's a, a big dove in frame, so obviously the cover was directed by John Woo. And then, <laughs> and then oh, there we are. There, there we, we're, uh, we were blind there. There's a, a billboard in the city that says yes. Perez Giordano Star. I it's don't like know. a star colored yeah. it, probably. Yeah, probably. Uh, you've yeah. got Deathstroke in there. You've got Brainiac Ship. Sinestro, the Joker with his giant uh, mallet from... Isn't that the same mallet he used for the Superpowers action figure, I think? Could be. Uh, Brother Blood. And you've got Catwoman, who... The Catwoman is the only piece that sort of, like, confuses me. She's hanging off the side of a building, and she she can really fall really easy. In fact, it looks like she's already leaping out of the window. Yeah, that's pretty dangerous. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if she's attacking... Batman's back. Is she a villain or a hero here? So it's, it's hard to say. Good point. I think she was pretty much straight up a villain at this point, but but a great art right on the cover, and then inside, as we mentioned, tons of Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, artwork throughout the book. Uh, now they have other artists in there too, but pretty much any stock, almost any stock piece he ever did is in this book. Yep, it's so. him and a lot of Perez as well, mm-hmm. uh, especially for the Titans. Yeah, and um, and a few others, of course. There's can be a mixed bag at, at times, but most of them, yeah, praise be his name. For sure, for sure. <laughs> You're part of the club now. Yeah. Uh, I got to tell you, I was reading on a website, it was reviewing, I don't know, second, third, or I think actually it was even reviewing um, maybe Mutants and Masterminds version of it. Either way, they referenced this first edition being quite possibly the most beautifully illustrated uh, superhero role-playing game ever. Well, there you go. That's, that's, high, that's, that's high praise right there. Well, let's talk about the game system a little bit, because it's been regarded by a lot of people. Now, it's funny, when you and I first talked about this, we both used the exact same word to describe the game, and every review I've read recently in preparation for this has used the exact same word as well. And that's probably where I stole it. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, the, I think the, word is, the word is elegant. Mm-hmm. That's the word. It is elegant. There are some clunky aspects to it. There always are. Uh, because you're trying to simulate, you know, using the same system to simulate so many things, uh, so many powers and so many levels of power. You've got to, you need a game that's going to, you know, stat up Lois Lane and Superman. So both of these characters have to exist within the same, the same system of rules. That's just two examples of power levels. I mean, the difference between Dr. Fate, how do you do Dr. Fate who can cast any spell, uh, for example? So the system is, and it's like I said earlier, the system is really invisible. You make your character, and that's got that's a point-cost system where uh, certain powers cost so many points, and getting it to a certain power costs so many points, and then you create a balanced character that everybody's characters cost about the same. But once that's done, it's really easy to just, everything works the same way. And then the, the real elegance of it is that every action is the same kind of role, and the role is, uh, it's, it's hard to explain, isn't it? Uh, yeah. You have to experience the Matrix to understand it. <laughs> <laughs> there are these action tables, they're called. So basically you've got them in, inside of your uh, Game Master screen, so that's it's an essential part, really, although it is, there are 
are printed in the in the books. You've got on one side, you've got the basically your stat, whatever it is. Maybe you've got heat vision eight, for example. You'd have an eight on one on that side, and then it, you'd roll and look up where. Yeah, it's really hard to explain. It's, it's very a- abstract, isn't it? Well, let me take a shot at it. There's these two tables. Everything in the game is run off these two tables. And they're not even that complex tables. They're pretty easy. Um, Once you understand, there's a horizontal and a vertical. You compare. The first table you use is your attempt to either to either hit somebody or succeed in an action. It's your effort. It's the action. It's, you're taking an action to do something. The other table is your result. So you, the first one's your action to try and hit or solve a problem or whatever. And if you succeed, then you go to the next table, which gives you how successful you were in that action. As Cisco was saying, you know, you have your stats. Like, let's say I'm attacking, I don't know, that Canadian guy, Cisco. And I would have a particular stat to attack him, and he would have a certain defense. And on that chart, you would look at my attack. Versus his defense, boom, it tells you what number you got to roll. It's just that easy. Everything around the, in the entire game is based on that core concept. All right. And if you exceed the number you're supposed to roll, then you might get a better a better result. Column shifts, they're called, because you're, you're looking at, uh, well, I was supposed to hit that number that's in that column, but I really hit that number that's way over there in that next column. So all those column shifts, each time you move away from the, the number you were supposed to hit and on the positive side of it, you get more wraps or results, attribute points, <laughs> but you get more result points, which means uh, causing more damage or getting more bang out of your interrogation or getting more clues or whatever it is you were trying to do. Really, players don't even need to, to think about this. That's why I had so much trouble discussing it, uh, <laughs> explaining it, describing it, because players don't need to know this. It's they roll. You tell them the number they're supposed to hit, or maybe you don't, and then they roll. They tell you the, the result, and then you tell them what happens in the game. It's, it's it's about describing it. So the numbers are invisible because they're on the inside of the game master screen. They don't know really what the numbers mean because it's all mathematical, but it's all been taken care of by the game. And we're actually making it sound a lot more complicated than it really yeah, is. I mean, really. it's. it's Again, one of the things that appealed to everyone with this game is the fast pace and how simple it was. It, in this table, you just simply compare a one-for-one, one, boom, and you're done. It's that easy, that quick. It's just harder to explain it because we're not yeah. game designers. <laughs> the designers did the math for you. Yeah. It's basically it. Now, you spent a lot of time babbling, it seemed like, about column shifts and whatever. I kind of <laughs> fell, I fell asleep for a minute there. Yeah. But one of the cool things that represents, though, is like in superhero comics, when the hero either, you know, realizes that it's a last-ditch moment, and they've got to put that extra effort in, you know, and that might be, in game mechanic-wise, you just roll a really high number. Or there's something else we'll talk about later called Hero Points, which, by the way, name of the podcast, which allow you, and, and both Hero Points and Column Shifts can represent the hero pushing beyond their limits, going beyond what they can normally do to save the day. And I love that that's kind of represented in the game. It's, it's built in as part of the mechanic. Right. And there's even the fun bit where you're always rolling two ten-sided dice. If you roll uh, two ones, uh, snake eyes, obviously if that's a critical failure, something really bad happens. But if you roll doubles, any other doubles, you get to roll again and add that number. The way they explain it in the designer notes, it's it's like, uh, well, we're looking through comics, and then Wonder Woman really hits somebody right, way too hard. I mean, usually her power levels aren't that way, so what are her actual power levels? Oh, well, I guess you just rolled a 32. You know, <laughs> that's what they say. So comics are fluid in that sense, and the game, so is the game. I loved, yeah. I loved the uh, critical failures. We always had fun with that. Like, a good example of a critical failure type situation is, uh, in one case, we had an in- a character who could turn invisible. He was at a place where the an office was being remodeled. Modeled. And he rolled critical failure on his action, and what he ended up doing was bumping a ladder and a bucket of paint tipped over on him. The invisible character got covered in paint, 
so everyone could see where he was. Yeah. That's the kind of stuff that would happen in a critical failure. It's not like you would die or something, but something very uncomfortable or unfortunate would happen to the character that would sort of inhibit their actions. Well, so the best part of being a game master is really, you know, torturing the players. <laughs> I was going to say screwing them over, but yeah, well, same thing. Yeah, <laughs> I don't like to kill characters off, right? But I like to screw with them badly. Yeah. Absolutely, and my players love it. Uh, my my passion was always <laughs> screwing with their their back history, and uh, and we'll talk about subplots later. But like that was always where I got my most passion from was like taking just some one throwaway sentence in the origin they wrote for themselves, and goodness gracious, create a whole subplot or adventure around it. So, and then the characters are built. We're talking still talking about essentials of the system. The way that the characters have powers and skills, obviously, but they also have, you know, basic attributes. They've got three um, physical ones, three mental ones, and then the, the clunky one for me was the, the three mystical stats. Mm-hmm. So they've got, uh, on the physical, they've got the dexterity, which is how they hit or how they dodge, and then their strength, which is the, the, the power of their hitting, and body, which is their uh, resistance stat. So that, that's their hit points, if you will. And then there's, uh, for mental, it's intelligence, willpower, and mind, are the, it's the same structure. And then you had the what they call the mystical stats, influence, aura, and spirit. That's one of the things that I found clunky about the, the system, one of the few things. Because it's for, for Batman, it's easy. It's It means he uses his influence to intimidate or interrogate people. It's the interactive, it's the interaction stat. It's applying, you know, personality, if you will. But it's also the mystical stats. Like the magic users all have strong stats there and spells affect the spirit. It was always like, well, which is it? Well, magic is almost impossible to roleplay in any game. I mean, now as I say that, somebody's listening going, no, I ran a campaign. And I'm sure people can do it. But magic is always hard to make work in a role-playing game full of superheroes. They did the best they could with it. And it gets better in, in later editions. It was definitely, it was kind of those stats whenever you built your character, it's the ones you didn't put many points into. <laughs> the dump stat. It's, yeah. it's kind of, yeah, it's like, oh, well, I'll just, I'll go cheap on that so I can be stronger. So that, that, those are the essentials, really. Well, and then, and then the, there's, wait, uh, stop. Yeah, no, did, did I stop? What, did I forget something? Like the core concept of the game, the whole attribute point thing. Oh, that's right. APs. Yeah. Attribute points. Yeah, that's right. That's the very, very basic block of the game is that everything is measured in APs, attribute points, everything. So that distance is in APs. Speed is in APs. Time is in APs. Explosions are, the megatonnage is in APs. Uh, weight is in APs, and the powers are in APs, skills, APs, everything is APs, except wealth in the, in the first edition, but <laughs> money turned into APs. And the AP chart, if you will, if you had, um, well, let's use money. If a dollar is one AP, which is, it isn't, but, uh, then two dollars is two APs, and then every time after that, it's exponential, so every AP is double the one before it. And that's how you could model Superman's strength. So Superman can't possibly have, if Lois Lane has two AP in strength, so she can lift, uh, 50 pounds, right? Mm-hmm. And Superman would have, if, if every increment was 25 pounds, Superman would have a billion, strength one billion, you know, right. kind of thing. So instead, Superman has strength, in this edition, strength 50, which means he can lift a million times what Lois Lane can, but his stat is still a small number. So yeah, everything it's, it's is, manageable. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So everything is measured in APs, and again, that's a nice mathematical trick. It's easy to calculate uh, how fast uh, Flash is going and how quickly he'll get somewhere, because you can just do, instead of doing the, the actual physics problem... <laughs> <laughs> you can just do a little thing with the APs and it'll give you 
exactly how much time a trip will take, for example. Well, so, and, and the beauty of having everything measured in APs is it brings you right back to those two tables again because everything gets solved on there, whether it's an attack or if you're up against a clock and you got to figure out how quickly you can do something or whatever. Everything's measured in APs. Everything comes back to that table. Works really nicely. Again, it goes back to that elegance. It really works smoothly. Yeah, and at the same time, they're emulating comics. So they, they found the, the system works very nicely, and it could work with probably other games, although not many games have people with strength, moon-pushing strength, but... Uh, <laughs> Like in the pre-crisis, anyway. They've also put little things in there that are just a little more like the comics. Just, uh, you know, how, how that happened in the comics. How does it relate to the game? And they're really thinking about, when you read the designer notes at the end of the books, you see that the designers were really thinking about that, having debates about that, and changing rules based on that, based on this isn't enough. This isn't like a comic enough. It needs to be more like the comics. In the comics, this happens. How do we make that happen in the game? And that's what makes it so magical. You know, one of my favorite designer notes is, since we're tangentially talking about that, was Robert Greenberger played a role in helping design this game. And he's really integral in a lot of DC comic stuff and who's who and all that. He, in a group of people, they had, they had originally decided at one point that the, the term, you know, in Dungeons & Dragons, there's the Dungeon Master. In DC Heroes, you've got the Game Master. Well, what the term was originally going to be was Game Monitor. Oh. And that was a nod towards Crisis on Infinite Earths. Well, it turned out during a bunch of playtesting, people kept getting confused because the monitor was such a character in Crisis. They, they thought the game monitor was actually in the game playing a character called the monitor, and it got a lot of people confused. So at the last minute, they ditched it. But I would have loved if they'd kept that, if the Game Master yeah. had been called the Game Monitor. That would have been, been neat. Yeah, that would have been cute. <laughs> but Game Master is so generic. I mean, every game it has is. a Game Master almost. Exactly. Now, you know, it's interesting. With the exponential system rather than a, a, a rith- arithmetical, that's not right. That's not right at all. And even I speak English. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Instead of a normal numbers meaning exactly what they mean. Right. Instead of a <laughs> geometric progression. Yeah, no, I think that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you get the exponential. One of the things that allowed was you could play crazy power-leveled games. And it still worked. Like, a lot of game systems will sort of fall apart when you either play street-level characters, a Batman, or, or, you know, to use a Marvel term, a Daredevil or whatever. Or if you play the, the higher end of the spectrum, you play Darkseid and Orion, and a Marvel version would be Silver Surfer. A lot of games just fall apart at the, at the extreme ends of the spectrum. This game, because of the exponential nature, kept it together, and it worked. And a lot of people, you know, to this day still acknowledge that this system was, again, elegant, and it worked that well that it could handle all ends of the spectrum. And a lot of uh, superhero games today still poach from uh, this system. It's got a, a very large influence on other games. Didn't the, the new Green Ronin version use some stuff from this? Very much. It's yeah. It's got an exponential um, attribute point system. Huh? Yep. And, okay. uh, yep. So it's got it's got a lot of those basic blocks, even though it's working with a D20 system. And they acknowledge it in the book. It's not it's not a theft. Well, I mean, it, <laughs> it's theft, but it's, it's a tribute. <laughs> the Mayfair Games might call it a theft, but... <laughs> yeah. Actually, Mayfair Games doesn't actually own DC Heroes. DC doesn't. Uh, there's even some, I've read some, some things on, on the net about who actually owns the system, even though uh, people did publish the system without the DC Heroes eventually. We'll, we'll talk about that later. Maybe they didn't really have the right to do so. Sounds like it. I read, I read a lot about that myself, too. So th- that's that's the system in, essentially the system, and it did win some awards, didn't it? Yes, it did. 
won the Origins Award in 1985 for Best Role-Playing Rules, and then in 1986 won the Origin Gamers Choice Awards for Best Role-Playing Game. That's really impressive that not only did they see it from a design point of view, the fans also thought it was that good. Just goes to tell you what a great game this was. One of the things that I think is worth talking about here while we're talking about the essentials of the game, too, was the character creation. I mean, you talked a little bit about how paying for different characters and how much they cost, but one of the things I loved about this game system was they had a very extensive section dedicated to character flaws, like your limitations, your vulnerabilities, your fears, your rational attractions. Because if you look at your classic DC characters, many Many of them have a vulnerability. You know, right. Superman. The color yellow or kryptonite. Yeah, exactly. Color yellow, exactly. <laughs> or wood. <laughs> or Professor Stein. Hey! Whoa! Whoa! Oh, I'm sorry. I should have said. I should have said during day. Is that what I should have said? Oh, good. Well done. Well played, sir. You really <laughs> saved yourself there. Or being able to. Oh, I don't know. Not going. Not go an hour without uh, a glass of water. You know. Yeah. <laughs> not even here to defend himself. Look at that. Mm. But <laughs> the character flaw is really interesting, and and this is something that as a player. You know, everyone loved this. Everyone jumped on these because you, you got more points for taking them, too. Like, it was beneficial to take limitations of vulnerabilities and fears and irrational attractions. And so you came up with just the crazy stuff. Irrational attraction was always, like, the one my players defaulted to. They'd try and come up with the most ridiculous irrational attraction. And, you know, I'd always be like, look, guys, you can't have an irrational attraction to underwater basket weaving. It's not playable. It doesn't work in the game. And so you had to, you had to balance it and make sure it was something that would actually possibly come up in the game. It was, it was a really neat, neat piece of the game system. For me, it was um, irrational fears. People scared of water and wouldn't take a bath. Oh, God. No, oh, jeez. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that player knows who he is. So oh. <laughs> somebody at home just went, "Oh, <laughs> oh!" Of course, I'm going to send them the link to the to the podcast. You know, right? If I'm, I'm going to trash them on on the air. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> by the way, folks, it, it's fair to say it, now a lot of you obviously either don't have this game or haven't seen it in years, whatever, we're going to put scans of various pieces of this up on Tumblr. I mean, there's not going to be a ton of stuff out there, but we were going to put definitely some pieces on Tumblr. We'll put some of the ads and different things. And that Tumblr is fireandwaterpodcast.tumblr.com. Fireandwaterpodcast.tumblr.com. Check it out, and you'll see some of the scans from first edition. And I'm definitely going to put out there the stats for Firestorm and Aquaman. Just saying. Dude, check this out. Firestorm what? and Aquaman have the same strength. Yeah, that's um, that's suspect. <laughs> hey, now. Well, is Firestorm, does Firestorm really have super strength? No. Because the upward, upward, Batman has five, and that's like the upward limit. The upward, upward limit for a human being is six. First order should have like a four, maybe a five. Like, they, they never, it, we're doing exactly what we said we wouldn't do, is talk about the mechanics. But I mean, but it is a Firestorm and Aquaman network of podcasts, so let's be and fair. We, yeah, we do have to pay tribute to those characters. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. yeah, like Firestorm used to get nailed all the time with having a, a, a small amount of super strength. And I'm like, where is that coming from? I don't, it, maybe a tiny bit? Like, like you said, if, if, ba- if six is the human peak, maybe he's got a six. Maybe, you know. Because he's two guys. Right, you know, double yeah. it, whatever. There's no way he's got an well, eight. If, if he's arm wrestling Aquaman, and if both got strength eight, obviously it's all on the roll. You know, I'd give you a bonus. Uh, you're playing Firestorm. Um, I'd give you a bonus because uh, your hair is drying up Aquaman. <laughs> right? That makes sense. Yeah. Your hair, your fiery hair is drying Aquaman. And there's exactly. no glass of water on the table. So Aquaman goes to his powers of animal control, speak with animals, and summon animals, and figures out none of those powers are of any use to him. Right. 
Well, you can tell the animals how he lost. <laughs> oh, we're being brutal. We're being brutal. <laughs> we, you know what? Since we're doing it, all right, real quick. Here we go. Here's the powers. All right, I mentioned Aquaman also has a power called Control, which I really don't even remember what that one is. I think, oh, that's uh, telepathic contro- controlling people. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. Go right. drill. Go clog up that motorboat and sacrifice yourselves. Ultra Vision, which in this case would allow him to see underwater in the dark. And Water Freedom, which was the power where you could breathe underwater. He totally should have... Some kind of super strength, though. His skills were acrobatics and diving, uh, martial artists, vehicles, and weaponry. And that diving, by the way, was specific to acrobatics, I should have mentioned. Right. He, he came with a water suit, which allowed him to uh, stay out of the water longer. Animal powers only work on marine life. And his wealth was affluent. Nice. Very good. He's a king. He is. Motivation of upholding the good. Firestorm, real quick. Powers. He had a crazy amount of powers. And Firestorm's a good example of a character that was very hard to put together in the game. Because Firestorm has wish fulfillment powers, basically, at the end of the day. The only thing that controls that is Ronnie Rapin making bad choices. Really. (laughs) Otherwise, he's Molecule Man. You know? And that's crazy powerful. So he had Dispersion, which was a power that allowed him to walk through walls. Energy Absorption. Flight. Matter Manipulation, which was his big power, where he could change one thing into another. Radar Sense, which was essentially the fact that... Professor Stein could look around him 360 degrees. Oh, yeah. I think the second edition calls it a full circle vision kind of thing. Yeah. Instead, yeah. Regeneration, which would allow him to, I guess he healed faster. Uh, And sealed systems, which was their way of basically saying you could go underwater, fly in space, you know, whatever. You didn't need any oxygen, essentially. And he also upholds the good, and his wealth is comfortable. Now, he's kind of neat because some of this stuff is split into two, like the skills. They list specifically Professor Stein's skills. Gadgetry and scientists, and Ronnie Raymond's was acrobatics. They talk about the limitation of matter manipulation does not work on organic matter, and their connections. Professor Stein's connected to the scientific community at a high level, and talks about their jobs as scientists for Stein and college student for Raymond. So anyway, interesting, you know, kind of fun little peeks into the old world of RPGs. Yeah. Now let's talk about interesting aspects of the game, whether it be mechanics or the contents, things like that. We've already talked about the amazing art, and that's just totally cool. You know, one of the things that you just can't help but notice when you read this game, though, is keeping in mind it's 1985 when this comes out, was the incredibly overwhelming influence of the Teen Titans in here, whether it be the artwork or some of the language. Like e- even this, I mentioned the Read This First book. When you pull out the Read This First book, the cover, one of the huge artistic elements of the cover is a giant T. Right, right on there, yeah. Yep. A lot of the paragraphs say, you know, imagine you're playing Nightwing, or imagine you're playing Raven, or imagine you're playing Starfire. You know, it it comes with a Teen Titans module. Yeah, and even even the uh, solo adventure, which you're just following, you know, jumping from paragraph to paragraph, is also a Titans game, so it's all Titans. But it makes sense, because they're they're who you're supposed to play. I don't mean specifically, because a lot of people, I, I mean, I, I don't know many people that played with pre, you know, DC characters. Everybody wants to make their own. Um, I, I, I imagine. Well, I see, you know, I've always wondered that. As I totally agree. Like, every once in a while, I'd, get in, I'd come across someone that wanted to play the characters, but they didn't really want to play the characters. They wanted to play the power sets. Right. A know? character like that. You exactly. Know. You know, I had a guy who designed a Green Lantern kind of character at one point. He didn't really want to play Hal Jordan. He just wanted to be a Green Lantern, you know, and have that cool power. So, yeah. I mean, I agree. You don't typically play the, the pre-built characters, but I see where you're you – continue with what you're saying about Teen yeah, Titans. Yeah, you're though. supposed to be playing the Teen Titans or a similar team of similarly power level – the Titans don't ha- can't have their own series, solo series. 
they, they're built to work together. So they've got, you know, very specific power sets. They're, they're specialists. There's somebody who, uh, you know, somebody's got strings and somebody fires blasts and somebody's got, you know, the technical and somebody's got the magical and then Jericho, whatever. So they've got, you know. <laughs> you gotta have somebody with mental powers. <laughs> yeah, mental powers, yeah. Uh, there's a shapeshifter, you know. So, so they've got, each one has his own thing and brings something to the team. And they're in the game. They're mid-level characters as far as power levels go. They're not street heroes like, uh, say, the Watchmen, very gritty and low-powered. And they're not Justice League level Supermans and Firestorms and uh, Wonder Woman uh, who have in in the game those characters. The Justice League characters are built on many more points, and street characters would be built on fewer points. But the Titans are what they're, they suggest you do. It's the we suggest you. You spend so many points to create your characters, your starting characters. And in a game like this, there's no, it's not like Dungeons and Dragons where you start at first level and end up wherever it is, 20th, 20th level or upwards and grow in ability. Superheroes don't grow in ability except when they have a, like a subplot that changes their power set. They, they're usually pretty much on the, the same power level all through their careers. The Titans are like the starting characters because they're young teens, possibly teens. So they're like young characters starting out, and you're a player with a, a character that's just starting out. I think you're supposed to play the Teen Titans. Whatever you call them and whatever characters you actually build, they're going to be a team of specialists, their own little abilities. They're going to be above that power level, which are easy to handle for new players uh, because you don't have too much. I think it's hard to play Firestorm or, or Superman because they've got so many different abilities and complex powers. Mm-hmm. But Titans are easy to play. Well, part of it, too, is just the, the appeal. I mean, Titans, as, as we mentioned earlier, was the, the I think it was the hottest book DC had going at the time. Yeah. Oh, for sure. If you look at role-playing games, we're clearly targeting 14-year-old boys. I mean, that's who they expected to be picking these things up. You know, congratulations, by the way. You did that. By targeting the Teen Titans, they thought, okay, we've got the top-selling comic for teens. The players are teens. Let's try and make this a teen-centric thing to, you know, sort of appeal to them. And, and, you know, if you looked over at Marvel, the most popular characters were X-Men, which, again, were older teens or or in their early 20s. And right on the box. Right on the box. What's that? The Marvel Superheroes uh, RPG. Yeah. It's got X-Men on the top. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's, again, it's designed for, used to appeal to teenage players. And so, yeah, absolutely it was designed for for the Teen Titans. And then they they, they proceeded to make a lot of adventure modules for, well, it's for your own heroes, but it says for Teen Titans. So the teams, you were buying adventures to to stimulate or actually play them outright. And you'd have the Teen Titans or Outsiders. I don't know who wants to play the Outsiders. (laughs) Right. Frankly, that's a that's your own heroes right there, or Infinity Inc. <laughs> but they're all the same kind of, you know, teams with mid-level power, and then you you fit your own characters in there. God forbid you play Halo, so you, know, you, you put your own character. But it's you know, so the game is built where yes, you could play Justice League, yes, you could play Sergeant Rock, but you're more likely to play Titans, Titan-like characters. So I don't. Well, possibly they made the game to reflect that. I, I just don't know if they, what came first, the chicken or the egg. Was yeah. Titans popular, so they made the game to be Titan life, or was the game, did the game work best at that mid-level, and then they said, well, perfect, the Teen Titans are exactly the kinds of characters we want people to make. Could be a bit, a bit of both. We would have to ask Greg Gold, Gordon himself. Yeah. Game designer and project coordinator Greg Gordon, who had also worked on, well, 
some of this is before and after, but uh, also well known for working on Star Wars, Torg, James Bond, 007, Earth Dawn, D&D. Nowadays, he's working on mobile games. And he helped, uh, or at least played an integral role in probably my favorite module from DC Heroes, Project Prometheus. Which I played last week. What did you think? Well, I, I, I heavily adapted it. <laughs> yeah, you should. You should definitely. I had to. I had to. But no, actually, it was a, it was a fun adventure. There's some, like, politics in it. We, we played that up a lot, I thought. Uh, the whole diplomacy aspect of, uh, of the game had, you know, Greek myths in it. It's, no, it's, it's, it's a fun inter- introductory adventure. I just never played it before because it was one I found on eBay much, much later. For some reason, whenever I would start a new group, I would use that at some point and adapt it. I guess because it was just my fascination with Greek myths. I don't know. But it works well. Yeah, and it, it it's like, oh yeah, it creates new villains. It doesn't use the DC villains, so it's like, oh, okay, it's our own little chunk of the DC universe uh, where it, it doesn't have to connect, and those characters could, in fact, return and be you know, MSCs for our players. I think part of the reason I kind of gravitated to that kind of stuff was you were talking about the way we ran adventures, and again, I'm I'm deviating a bit from first edition because I didn't really have a long-standing campaign of first edition, but that's how we always played. We would always play in the DC universe, but sort of in our own corner. You know, we would either pick a city where there weren't really any known heroes like Chicago or Atlanta or we'd make up our own city and we would try and fight for the most part our own villains. Once in a while we'd sprinkle a well, uh, well I put in air quotes well known DC villain in there. We uh, During second edition we used to we seemed to used to fight Bolt all the time for Blue Devil. <laughs> we were third tier schmucks. You know it's kind of yeah. how we always played it. We were always the, the heroes down on their luck. We never were like at the top of our game. You know if the Justice League ever called us it's because they you know misdialed or the phone rather than intended to. So I, I, you I deserved. You deserved Bolt and Shrapnel and <laughs> I don't I don't even think we ranked Shrapnel. <laughs> Well, I always liked having that little corner of, of the DC universe as our sort of thing. Now, speaking of adventures, like, so you, you obviously use modules and, and adapt them and stuff. I do a lot of that. Yeah. The way I usually work is that I, I'll use, I'll plan out and use modules because I, I bought so many. I, I, I've got to justify that expense somehow. <laughs> now, that's why, that's why I played Dream Park for so long because I could, I could adapt any module from any game into the Dream Park setting. That's the, the, one of the real reasons why I played that. I'll use the, the module adapted for my play. But from that, we'll grow subplots, and then we'll follow subplots along, and they'll become adventures. And so organically from the from the material that's Mayfair produced uh, will come new adventures. Or So that's the that's the seed, and it, you know, it's all planned out for you. Sometimes it's better structured than what you might come up with yourself you know, on a Sunday afternoon just before the game. Uh, <laughs> and so, so I like to use that. You know, it's a mix because you start doing other things that are specific to the the characters that you're developing. Yeah. Subplots and all that really play yeah. a big role in it. Yeah, absolutely. And the reason I ask is I, I never really played that many modules. Even though I would buy them because I found them fascinating or I, maybe I wanted the blueprints to the Justice League satellite, which I totally did. Um, we That was our base. That was my first team's base. The abandoned Justice League satellite? Yeah. He picked up that cheap at auction. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> so what we would do in our case, we would develop our own adventures, and one of the things this game had a really good thing was it had a quick adventure generator. With a couple of dice, a couple of minutes, and looking on a couple of different tables, you could generate an entire adventure, just rolling it up. And sometimes it might not make sense, so you would just tweak it here or there, and they recommended it. You know, don't just take it at face value, make it your own. It'd give you some recommendations of how you could do it, and you could come up with a, a very playable Sunday afternoon, having fun rolling dice sort of adventure. And as you say, you know, just like you said, sprinkle some of the subplots in there, and you could, you'd be good to go. Yeah. So I 
I always felt like Mayfair did a really nice job with that. Speaking of rolling, I gotta mention it. I have a weird illness where I love dice. That the role playing aspect of, of picking up dice, the the tactile sensation of rolling dice. There's something to it, which is probably why craps, you know, in in Las Vegas is so big. There's something tactile about picking up dice, the sound of them clicking together. Anyway, this game came with two sort of very unique dice. It came with a blue and a red ten sided dice. But the weird thing about it was the seven was a European seven. It had the little you know extra line through it. That's really and weird. I'd, I'd never se- I've never seen a, a die with it before. I've never seen a die with it afterwards. I don't know why. Like these became my favorite dice, you know, because of that. I guess because it was sort of different, and unique, and it always reminded me of DC. Even when I got the second edition box set, which I want to say was red and yellow, I think. Yeah, yeah, those are two of my favorite dice. So <laughs> yeah. they are they are red and yellow. But just these, with the seven on it, I always knew that these were my DC dice at first edition immediately. Sadly, I, ha- I have lost my red dice over the years. I think I loaned it to somebody and didn't get it back, whatever. But I still got my blue one, by golly. Well, that's a strange little seven there. Yeah. Yeah. I've never seen that either. Hmm. Going down my notes here, a couple other interesting things. One thing that I liked about this game was that I thought was unique to role playing was it declaring initiative. You would calculate your initiative, and what that means for non gamers is that you would calculate who goes first, who's right. going to attack first, and whatever. The way you would do that is everyone would figure out the, their numbers, and so everyone would figure out who's going in what sequence. You know, Bobby's going first, Sally's going second, Joe's going third, whatever. And then you would declare your action saying, well, this is what I'm going to do. You would actually declare it in reverse order. So the guy who's going last actually says what he's going to do. Part of the reason I liked this was because it sort of it gave the people who had the higher initiative, gave them an advantage in that they could tell what was about to happen around them. Because really, in theory, it's all kind of happening at the same time in real life, you know, because one whole round takes like four seconds, I think, or something like that. By going first, you kind of get a feel for what's happening around the room, and you can use some of that to your advantage. And I always like that aspect of declaring initiative in reverse order. I've, I've used that on many other games I've gone to since then. Yeah, we had trouble with that. I mean, it's, it just never worked out that way. I probably we had all these these bad habits from other games where first initiative declared first said what he was doing and then uh, but it's true that y- you should be able to if you're faster and you've got better for reflexes you should be able to react to what the last the slowest guy is doing so it's it's really smart but in actual play i don't think we ever made it work <laughs> but that's on us <laughs> you're, you're totally broken absolutely yeah broken. i know i know it's, it's terrible. <laughs> One of the things that really, that was a watershed moment for me when I cracked open the, the game at the time uh, was was the whole idea of bashing combat versus killing combat. Mm-hmm. That, because we in my little homebrew, my stupid little homebrew, one of the first, I was, I was a player in that, which I created the game, but I was a player, and the game master was, while well, one of my very best friends was a terribly cruel game master. So, <laughs> so the first thing he did was kill off my supporting cast. That was the first game. My supporting oh, cast. No way. Yeah. Well, yeah, and it was so easy because there was no, there, there wasn't a concept of bashing combat. So in comics, they're hitting away and they're draining the, the, the energy out of people, but nobody dies or, well, I mean, in, in those days, nobody died. Um, <laughs> yeah, so you, you didn't necessarily die just because Superman punched you. But if you use a Dungeon Dragons model, Superman would hit you. You'd drop the minus 10 hit points and you'd be dead. 
that concept, which is was true to comics, uh, was something I'd never seen before. Where okay, I, I'm I'm hitting you, but when you hit zero, you just you're unconscious. You don't need to die. Right. But we were playing superheroes. The whole we were playing superheroes who were killers accidentally. And he, he killed off my supporting cast, and then in the in a fight where I was just trying to apprehend the uh, the killer, I killed the guy. <laughs> So now I was a fugitive on the run who had just killed someone, and my whole supporting cast was dead. We never played it again. You, you were playing uh, <laughs> Kid Miracle Man from Alan Moore's run. Oh, God. Or Superboy Prime, where he punches his fist through Panther's head or whatever. Yeah, so we invented that. But <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. There was, there was a lot of little, you know, little things like that that made it more like the comics. Uh, that, there was the, in the first edition, what they called the Batman option. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In, in the later editions, they call it intensive training. The Batman, the Batman option was actually called that in the first edition. Batman option is uh, for heroes who don't have any powers. So they can just pick up more skills and use their points to build their character so that they're really effective skill masters. Like Batman. That's a, that was an interesting one. One one thing I was surprised to see in the in this edition because it's not in the the later ones is training time for skills. Mm. It tells you how long you got to train. Did, any, did anyone ever actually use those rules? I I've, I've never. <laughs> I don't think I've ever used training rules in any game. Right. Exactly. Uh, yeah. It just happened between game <laughs> between uh, gameplay. Right. But it says stuff like 21 APs, two months. <laughs> God. That's insane. Well, it's fair to make because earlier you said characters don't change that much. I mean, there were rules in here and, and in later systems about how to grow your character. So you could right. go from a strength six to a strength seven or whatever. Or gain, even, you could even gain new powers. I mean, there were there was a reward system when you role played, and then that would allow you to grow your character. Right. Your hero points were at once your experience because you could use those points to, to build your character, but of course that makes sense. You can just grow new powers, you know, willy-nilly. But it was also a way to use, uh, like other games now use bounty points, or there's all sorts of names for them, uh, story points. It could be used to boost your stats in any given moment. It was also your experience, so you could actually build your characters, and a lot of, pe- a lot of people did, you know, slowly but surely. One of the ways that I help players do that was through the subplots. We've been saying we're going to talk about it. Let's talk about it. The subplots thing was, that was the most mind-blowing thing about the game when I first read it. The, the idea that these characters had lives, just like in the comic, they had lives separate from their adventures, separate from missions, that they had, they were people with supporting casts and other problems. That whole idea of subplots, that you could do scenes and it's, it's perfect for doing scenes. Everybody's not, you know, everybody hasn't come in yet. We're waiting for on someone. Well, let's, let's do a little um, subplot scene for one of the players. After the Internet sprung up, used to do that on Microsoft Messenger or whatever it is. Little subplots that were just, you know, me talking with someone else and advancing their little plot line. That whole idea was, you know, really important to how I play games today. Now, this game, the way they were built was some of the subplot stuff they said you could do with examples were like secret past, death guilt, enemies, family or friends, job, power complication, public reputation, romance, secret identity, miscellaneous. These were examples of various subplot hooks you could use. Right. And, and it could be really useful because I had, like, for example, I had a player who built a character and then discovered he really hated the power set. Mm. It wasn't as interesting as he thought it would be. It wasn't as useful as he thought it would be. It would be. So he wanted to change his powers without really changing the character's identity. So we went for it with a subplot. 
it's a subplot that will eventually transform his powers. I mean, that happens in comics. So you could use you could use a subplot to really transform a character and help a player get to where he's having more fun. That's really cool. Further additions, a lot of these would be changed and actually be called advantages and disadvantages, which would help you in building your character point-wise, which is a clever way to incorporate it. But the subplots, is, yeah, it started here and really, really was such a neat, neat aspect of the game. Uh, there's there's a couple of things I wanted to... I'm going to be nitpicky for a minute here. Uh, one of the things they, they suggest in the game, and this has never sat well with me, is you could roll your attributes or skills to solve certain things. And some of it would be intellectual issues. Like, let's say you're playing Batman, and the Riddler leaves you a clue, and you could roll your skills related to intelligence, and, and if you rolled high enough, the Game Master was just supposed to tell you the answer to the clue. That always drove me nuts. Because I was always like, that... That like takes away from half the fun, you know. Why why have the Riddler write a clue if you're just going to roll dice to solve it? So what I always did was like I would do something where the Riddler would come up with clues or something like that, and I would make the players roll, and if they got high enough, I'd give them clues towards or hints towards solving, but I would never have them solve it altogether. I don't know if you play that way if you're you know a hard. No, we're the, we're the same. We're the same. It's the same. There's always a sort of weird. I, I mean, probably for some players, perhaps younger players. I don't know, but. Uh, things like interaction skills. I, I hate it when it's just, well, I, uh, I'll, uh, I'll fast talk the, the person, so I'll, you know, I'll persuade the person, I roll a dice. Well, how about we do a little talking there where you persuade me for real? Yeah. Yeah. And I've had some players do that. They just say, well, I use my persuasion skill. Well, okay, let's, let's have the, let's have the talk and then maybe I'll give you a bonus or not a bonus. <laughs> no, absolutely. <laughs> Depending like... on, on, on what you do, yeah. I had a guy and a girl in the group who were, their characters were supposed to be romantically linked. I made them flirt and things like that, you know. Um, we did one night, this is a later edition, but one night where we went entirely, what we called entirely diceless. There were no dice in the night. Everything had to be acted out. There was no combat. It was all subplot. We had so many brewing subplots where our characters actually got to the point where we sort of needed group therapy. We would take turns, each per, you know, each person would play the psychologist for a while. And everyone else would just argue out their issues. Like, you know, I can't believe you left me in that mission six months ago, blah, blah, blah. I've never forgiven you. You know, whatever it was. It's exactly like you said. The subplots just added so much to the game. At some point, you know, if you're not enjoying the adventure itself, the subplots are what's bringing you back. Yeah, it's what makes it's what makes your – you invest more in your character when you do this. Yeah. He's uh, not just a set of stats that goes into battle. And I think over time, I mean, I've sidelined battles <laughs> – Oh man, Project Prometheus last week was, you know, it was pretty battle thin. <laughs> yeah. It was a lot more about interaction and that, that, that state dinner with the King Minos or whatever. It was a lot more about that <laughs> and interaction because that's, that's, I think that's where it works best and where my players live. I think part of its age too. I mean, when I was, when I was 12, it was about rolling the dice and beating the bad guy. Yeah. And, and now as I got older, it's about, like you said, it's about the interactions. All right. I got one, I got two more nitpick things. One thing that doesn't sit well with me is, like, remember we talked about earlier there, there's an action and then there's an effect. In some cases, like, certain powers would replace people's action ability. Like, meaning, like, let's say I want to hit somebody, and I would use probably my, you know, let's say I want to blast somebody. I'm going to use my, my star bolts, for example, to blast somebody. You, you Normally, you would think you would use something like your dexterity because you're aiming, right? But in this case... The power level of the of the power, which the APs of the power, is what becomes your action and your effect. And that never sat well with me. It didn't make any sense to me. Like, why? Just because I can do a lot of damage with my blast, why does that mean I can aim it really well? Yeah, there's some 
some bugs in the powers, and they fixed many of them in later editions, mm-hmm. but not all. Like for me, what really bugged me uh, in first edition was was the powers they gave equipment, so that you'd have a like a knife would have the claws power. Yeah, it's just as weird. That's, just, <laughs> that's, that's kind of clunky. You know? Oh my, my knife has claws. <laughs> Uh, and, and also the, the names of the power. They, they often match the name of the power with certain DC characters. So that shooting a beam of heat was called heat vision, regardless of where it came out of. <laughs> yeah. And there's a whole bunch of shooting blast powers in this first edition, too. It's like, these are all the same power. They just call them a different name and link them to a different attribute for some reason. Yeah, there's a lot of that. And that stuck around uh, <laughs> for a while. Yeah. I have to say real quick, in, in full disclosure, that Starbolt one I was convetching about, the example I read getting ready for this podcast was about Starfire, and I really hate the character of Starfire, so I, I'm probably more disposed to not liking that simply because she was involved in the example. That makes sense. <laughs> makes some kind of sense. Makes emotional sense. There you go. My, yeah. my last kvetching is about gadgets. I could never wrap my head around the gadget rules. They were so complex it is, honestly, it's this way with most superhero role-playing games. And I get why they're doing it. They're trying to make it realistic. But I pretty much just walk away at any point on a gadget thing. I'm like, I'm out. Forget it. Not doing it. Again, I think 2nd Edition fixed the problems. It was much better in 2nd Edition. 1st Edition, was, and always in those ugly gray boxes, as like <laughs> the one the one you know graphical eyesore in 1st Edition was, was those gray boxes with all the gadget stats. It was just like, why do we need all this all this space taken up for... The knife with the claws. Right. Um, but they did fix those eventually. But yeah, first edition, and they, they published a whole source book just of gadgets. Yeah. Uh, which was based on that system because it was so, you know, difficult so they, for players to, to make their own. They had to publish more. But there, there's some clunky aspects to the first edition. That's one of them for sure. But on the whole, it's a great game. Oh, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm nitpicking. I mean, keep in mind, yeah. One of the, oh, yeah, one of the things I want to mention about subplots, if I can go back for a, a second, was uh, a designer note. I, I love those designer notes, and there are some in the second edition as well. But the designer note said, and this is another Teen Titans reference, that the reason subplots are in the game is because of the, the wedding of Donna Troy. Mm. The, the designer was reading it, uh, was reading comics. There was this great issue, Wedding of Donna Troy. It's, it's a famous Teen Titans issue. Uh, story. He didn't know how to inspire players to do that kind of thing, to do a whole issue, well, a diceless issue, like like you you were saying. So that's how subplots were born to encourage players to play those scenes, to have those moments, and it it really does tap into the whole New Teen Titans soap opera feel hmm. of comics in those days of X Men and and mm-hmm. Titans, which were very were like superhero soap operas. They so, they they hit that zeitgeist, if you will, quite well. Yeah, so that was, uh, that was something I wanted to mention. One thing I really liked about the um, the first edition that is not in the second, and I wish there was more of it, is that, that fun little, in the player's handbook, the player's manual, mm-hmm. at the bottom of the pages, there's a... Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a little... It's like It looks like a little timeline, uh, but it's not dates. It's, it's APs for speed and distance. So that you're moving along the line and you say, oh, you, you hit four APs. That's the speed of a horse and, or, or so on. And then right up to, you know, light speed or, and beyond. 
And I wish they'd done more of that, where you'd have a little timeline, where you'd see a little line, where you'd see about strength, for example. You know, like an elephant weighs this, and a planet weighs that along the line. Because <laughs> that was so fun. It was, it was little pictures. It, it went like 20 pages long, too. Yeah, it's, it's, the, the little timeline along the bottom went like 20 pages long, so you can kind of, you know, like he said, it starts off with a turtle going, and then finally you, know, you get to like Superman flying, you know, towards the end, or the, the sun to Alpha Centauri. <laughs> yeah, so, and it's, and you know, it's, it's like a, it's illustrative, it's, it's a good, it's a nice way to, to show how it works and what the, um, the benchmarks are. So I wish there had been more of that. I mean, there was room, and it, it was just like the bottom margin of the book. Mm-hmm. You could have done that for the whole thing. Well, uh, I want to take a second to talk about, there's there's a section in the Game Master book dedicated to characters, and where they kind of stat up the characters from the DC Universe. And right. uh, it's not terribly long. I mean, you, you pointed that out right before we started recording. Yeah, it's, well, uh, compared to second edition, it's really, it's really short. And I think one of the reasons is probably because of Crisis. Because they do mention in the, the liner notes that, you know, there, there are no stats for Harbinger and Pariah and... And they, they didn't even know the anti-monitor was called the anti-monitor. So <laughs> because of Crisis, there are characters we don't want to spoil, that kind of thing. But also, the characters you see here are the characters as they exist post-Crisis. They post say that. Post or pre? Post, I think. I can, I can reference it. Uh, it says um, uh, some of the details cannot be revealed. So what is in this game? The information in the game concerning characters and places and events are compatible with the, my latest information as to how things will be when Crisis is over. Oh, okay. With the exception of Red Tornado, who appears in an upcoming module in his old form. <laughs> okay, well, there you well, go. You know, it's Red Tornado. We don't care. Aww. But I, well, I'm sorry. <laughs> or D- Doug Z does. He cares. That's true, that's true. Red Tornemo does have some fans. But... <laughs> But I am not one of them, so there you go. But maybe that that's why. I mean, they couldn't really do as many characters because we just don't know what they'll be like in two weeks or two months, you know, if it was near the end of Crisis. Maybe that's why. I think part of it, too, is they didn't want to give you too many because they wanted you to buy the supplements. You know, I mean, they give you your core super friends, essentially, you know, plus Teen Titans, and then you get, you know, then you go buy the modules, you know. Um, I'm going to run through a few of these real quickly. I, I wanted to spend a little more time on it, but I'm looking at the time. We're, we're really into this, timing-wise. It's, it's actually, it's like a little tiny mini who's who is kind of what this is, you know. You, you get the Adam Ray Palmer back when he's in his sort of Adam guys. And you jump in here or, or follow up, whatever you want to do. You, know, you get Aqualad and Aquaman, and I would cover Aquaman more. But one of the things I found interesting here, and we'll have to ask Rob someday, is it says it mentions to Asmara as the exiled queen of Atlantis. Soon after Aquaman's coronation, he met and married Mera, the exiled queen of Atlantis. I don't remember that. It's got Black Canary with her totally effed up origin of where her mom, <laughs> just crazy, absolute crazy sauce. Of course, Batman's in here, and Changeling, and Cyborg, and Elongated Man, and Firestorm. Woo! We've already talked quite a bit about him. Yeah, Flash. Two, two Green Lanterns. We yes, two you, Green get, Lanterns. you get John Stewart and Hal Jordan. It mentions here how Hal's given up the ring. You get Robin. I jumped ahead. Sorry. Yeah, uh, Green Haw- Arrow. Hawkeye, Jericho, Kid Flash, Martian Manhunter, Nightwing, Raven, Robin, which is the Jason Todd Robin. Uh, and I don't think also- Hawkeye is actually in it. Did I say Hawkeye? Yeah. Uh, Hawkman. Hawk Terribly man. sorry. Hawk well, you man. said Green Arrow, and then I followed up with Hawkeye. 
<laughs> anyway, this is the Jason Todd version, the pre-crisis Jason Todd. So this is when he was still an acrobat and all that back when then. So that's kind of a, it's a, it's a small peek into a, a short period of time of existence, really. Yeah, and real e- easy comparison with Nightwing and Robin right next to each other. Oh, yeah, look at that. So you, so you could, you know, yeah, oh, you know. Well, I mean, Robin, Jason Todd's a kid, so obviously yeah. it doesn't compare. See, Jason yeah. Todd needed a connect, one of his connections to be to, to Kid Devil. He needed that because they're pen pals. So. Uh, all he's got is circus. Right. <laughs> you get Superman, Wonder Woman, Wonder Girl, and Zatanna. Now, uh, like for me, you know, I was so bothered that Blue Devil wasn't here. So I, of course, immediately created my own Blue Devil stats. I created my own little card. I did the whole shebang for Blue Devil because it was just driving me nuts he was down here. Oh, yeah, you made your little cards, your own cards? Yeah. I did make a few. I did make a few. Yep. I used to make my own Who's Who pages for my players. All my players, ha- I have the, the Who's Who pages for their, their own characters. I didn't have any serpent, though. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I would do is I would trace. When Marvel came out with the Advanced Edition, they had these great little cards where you could see a full figure of a body, and they would have some, like, blank ones for you to trace. So I would actually trace from the Marvel set to design my DC character. Now, years later, uh, when I, we did our, our West End Games campaign, we actually used a program, an online program called the Hero Machine. I don't know if you've ever seen it or yeah. not. Yeah, oh, no, my players use that a lot for the yep. later campaigns, yeah. We always would use that. I got, I got to mention something here. This role-playing game actually played a role in me becoming a bigger fan of the DC Universe. I was already collecting, as I said, Firestorm. Pretty sure I was getting Justice League. But I wasn't into the whole DC Universe at this point. But this pulled the trigger, which made me become a bigger DC comic fan. I was reading this book, and I had just recently bought Flash number 350, his final issue, where Barry Allen goes off into the sunset in the 30th century and all that. Comic didn't make a lick of sense to me, because it was just balls of all crazy. But I really liked The Flash. And so I get this book, right? And again, this came out around September 1985, right around issue 10 of Crisis. In The Flash's entry, it talks about The Flash, blah, 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 all these different things. And the very last sentence... In the Flash entry on page 77 of the Game Master book that changed my life forever, Barry Allen died as a result of the crisis on Infinite Earths. And it's one of those, like, shocking moments you see in movies nowadays where the camera sort of zooms into the main character and the rest of the world somehow zooms out. And I don't know how they do that with the camera, but it's amazingly effective. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. It's it a was that kind of trick, yeah. It was that kind of moment, like, <gasps> What? And so I, as quickly as I could, went up to the local drugstore and picked up Crisis on Infinite Earth number seven and number eight. Both were still on the shelf at the at the drugstore, and that was my window into the bigger DC universe. All because wow. of this book. Wow! The sickness starts here. <laughs> the sickness starts here. On page seventy-seven. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Uh, you want to cover the villains real quick? Sure, and I think here, right here, there's a there's a crisis problem because on that first page of villains, there's Brainiac, and there's even a picture, and it's the the robot Brainiac pre-crisis. Yep. According to their information, I they probably had no idea with what uh, John Byrne was planning for the uh, the Man of Steel with all the, the reshaped characters, and a lot of the uh, first modules with Superman in them, like one of the first modules, adventure modules, has Brainiac as a villain, and it's, it's this one, yeah. the, uh, the metal skeleton. Superpowers, Brainiac, as I call him. Yeah, which is the coolest one. So, <laughs> <laughs> But you've got, well, the, I think they tried to probably mat villains with the heroes that they have. So there is a, there, Black Bison is there. Woohoo! So that, that, yeah, that's your Firestorm villain, which, I mean, he's pretty, he's really a C-lister compared to, to the rest. All right, just for the record, there are two Firestorm villains in here. Oh. And only one Aquaman villain. 
I'm just saying. Yeah, well, doesn't Aquaman only have one villain? I guess they could have put the Ocean Master. He's got two. He has two. <laughs> yeah, but Black Manta's next, and they've got Black Manta, Brainiac, Brother Blood, Catwoman, Cheetah, two. No Cheetah electric, one. Electric Boogaloo. Yep. Chesh- Cheshire. It's pronounced Cheshire, right? Che- I was Cheshire? Cheshire. I think it's Cheshire, according to the Who's Who glossary. Uh, yeah, I used to say <laughs> Cheshire. Uh, we're Cheshire Shaws. Yeah, that's it. Right. Dark, Dark Side, Gorilla Grodd, Joker, Killer Frost. Oh, yeah, there she Woo-hoo! is. Yep. And th- see, this should say Killer Frost, too. Yeah, but, I mean, they're basically the same. They're don't the same. Don't hate. The same. Don't yeah. hate. I, no, I don't hate. I, I love Killer <laughs> Frost. But, you know, she's basically the same person twice. She got yes. reincarnated in sort of thing. Lex Luthor, and that, this is the Lex Luthor with the, the battle suit, so really they didn't know what, what Superman was going to become. A Mantis? What the hell? Mantis Superpo- is in here? Superpowers. That's right. It's got, it's got a strong... Yeah, if the action figure exists, the character's in here. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Mixelplick, or... And I say it as the Super Friends did. I, mean, I know it's not that. I, I say it the same way. Yeah. Penguin is in here, so... That's, that's one listener that's happy. Um, <laughs> if Jack Dower's held on this long. <laughs> Dr. Psycho, so Wonder Woman's got somebody. Two somebodies. She's got Cheetah as well. Riddler is in here. The Shark. Sinestro. Terminator, which is Deathstroke. Terra. And Trigon. Look at that. Little Titans Terra's for in you. the villains. Oh, God. Well, by this point, she was. Yeah, yeah. And then they've got NPCs, or I mean, aren't the villains NPCs as well, but non-player characters. And so they got stats for Alfred and uh, Lois Lane, Lana Lang, uh, Harvey Bullock and uh, Jim Gordon, Terry Long, boop, but, and also a, a bunch of generic characters. So if you're looking to have an astronaut or an athlete or a beat cop or security guard, they've got stats for those kinds of guys you can adapt for, for your games. It's fair to note that uh, these guys' supporting cast got better respect here than they did in Who's Who. Yeah, that's true. And then you got animals. <laughs> okay. It's too bad you don't have Animal Man in <laughs> the, well, you know, that, that's the best use of the animal section is, is poaching the powers for Animal Man. I have to say, I don't, they must have gotten this art from somewhere else because the art for the animals is probably the most Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, is gorgeous superhero art. But the animal art is like the most realistic, beautiful art in the book. It's It looks like it comes from uh, naturalism, um, you know, like like books on biology like Darwin would have drawn in, in yeah. books. That kind of treatment. It's really pretty. Yeah. No, it's nice. Well, the whole book is... Uh, Art-wise, we, we can't say it enough. It's, it's like it's a beautiful product. Yeah. It's really nice. You, you were saying something... It was in, in, in a note you sent about the the character's motivations. Oh, that's me. That's just yeah, which I thought was interesting. Like I, it's funny. It's funny the things you really get hyper focused on when you're a kid. Like the, I mentioned the dice, my passion for these dice, which is just kind of a weird thing. One of my real passions with this game, that the thing that sort of was almost a wake up call for me, was the motivation section. It's 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 just a couple of pages in the player's handbook, but. It spent time discussing the motivations, and, and I guess I hadn't paid enough attention when we played Dungeons & Dragons at the alignment, because that's all it really essentially is, is the alignment from Dungeons & Dragons. But it's it, there are a few different categories of upholding the good, responsibility of power, uh, and here, here's the examples. A Superman is considered upholding the good. Green Lantern is considered responsibility of power. Batman is considered seeking justice. Green Arrow is considered thrill of adventure. And Cyborg is considered unwanted power. 
And when I saw, like, the superheroes broken down this way, it really just clicked for me. Like, I finally, like, uh, superhero storytelling, even, comic book th- philosophy, you know, as a 12-year-old, it was all just kind of like, bing, 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 lights started going off all over the place. And each pl- each one of these characters has this long, like, three-paragraph, four-paragraph section underneath it. So Superman himself talks about what upholding the good means to him or why he's a superhero. And each one of the characters have that. And this, this two-page spread just was one of my favorites and always resonated with me. It still fascinates me to this day. I reread it the other night when we were prepping for this. I love yeah, it. I do the same, you know. I, I think of characters in terms of those motivations, of those basic motivations. I do. Yeah. And, uh, and, it's, it's, and I mean, those they, they give those motivations, and that's another second edition note, is that the only character there that fell out of favor is Green Arrow. He's not the one with the thrill of adventure in um, in the second edition. It's Changeling. So I'm, I'm surprised it's not a Teen Titan right there. Um, <laughs> you know? And then the villains also have their own, Power yeah. Lust and Mercenary and all that, yeah. And in eventually the game would become Blood of Heroes, Without the DC Universe, and that's in 2000, they actually added another bunch anti-hero motivations. Ah. So you see how the world changed. Because there's a nice little section in, um, kind of sweet, in the uh, player's manual at the beginning. Mm-hmm. The first, well, the first page, it's page three, but it's really the first actual page. It's called Being a Hero and Got Superman Flying Upwards. And then it says, what is a hero? And it says, a hero tries not to kill, and then explain things. A hero helps the innocent. A, a hero values his friends as well as himself. A hero does not give up. A hero works for the common good. I mean, it, it's so, it's, I mean, this is 1985. And I wish this was still true of comics mm-hmm. today, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and the comics I like best are those that, where the hero is that hero, that, that description. Totally understand, man. Got to find your joy and stick with it. Yeah, but by 2000, <laughs> you know, the game, this, this this system had anti-hero motivations, which are basically all the other motivations, except it says anti-hero in the front of it, mm-hmm. and it means the hero's ready to kill or commit crimes to achieve the goal. There isn't an anti-hero upholding the good, <laughs> that's for sure. Right. <laughs> but, there, you know, there's an anti-hero seeking justice, and he's ready to kill. He's Punisher, basically. Back in those days, all the... The hero motivations are pretty, um, uh, they leave it up to you. I mean, a hero could go over the edge, but they, they encourage players to be heroic in their portrayal of their of their characters, which yeah, I thought was nice. It was very nice. I, I really, again, to this day, it still resonates with me. So I'm with you, brother. Now, I, I like, you pointed out how things have changed. One of the things I just got to point out is, it cracks me up, is in that Titan Solitaire adventure, the big, big thing that gets stolen, there's a big theft it's all about this piece of computer equipment. Oh, yeah. The Teen Titans are trying to recover desperately this piece of computer equipment, and it's called the Billion Byte Chip. Da, 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 da. Can you do the math? Do the math on that. That's one gigabyte. <laughs> I got a thumb drive just sitting in the bottom of my briefcase. It's like six times, sixteen times that, and I don't even use it anymore because it's too small. So, <laughs> just, uh, yeah. just that cracked me up. When but I at the that. time, at the time, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, at this point, I think I. Uh, I don't think I had my Commodore 64 yet. I think I was still using my 32K uh, TRS-80, so. (laughs) Now, a couple more just little tidbits i got to mention here. The screen is a really pretty piece of art. You've mentioned the Game Master screen a couple times. It's a fold-out three-panel screen, and it's got, on the left, Batman. On the right, it's got Superman. And in the middle, is it's got a cityscape, but it's got this big, bright yellow moon. 
in sort of silhouette outline, you've got the faces of Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. And for me personally, this is the first time I ever saw them as a trinity. I never picked up on that before. I never noticed it before. And I know a lot of people would argue it never existed before, like around 2000. I never saw Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman as the main players of the DC Universe. To me, it was always Batman and Superman. So here, it just kind of... I don't know. It, it, it changed the way I thought a little bit. And so when all the Trinity stuff came up really heavy in the 2000s, it, it didn't strike me as shocking. It was like, yeah, okay, yeah, it is those three. And yeah. I think that screen played a role in it. I think the, the, the Trinity probably comes from the, uh, the 50s. I mean, the three characters that continued on from Golden Age to Silver Age straight through. Ooh, careful there, Sonny. Well, you- I know. I know there are other, uh, others, but there's like, we'd be the main. Only two more. There's only two more. Green Arrow and, um, is it Aquaman? Yes, it's Aquaman. <laughs> well, that's pretty, that's tail end golden age. Yeah, I know, the, I, I know the legend of the, the yellow glove, but the. <laughs> All right, folks, yeah. this will be Cisco's last podcast as part of the well, fire now. Yeah, I worked, I, yeah, I've been a member of foam for years, but yeah, I know there, there, there are those five, but the three are the, the big three that didn't get, that, that had their own books. Yeah. That didn't get canceled uh, early in the Silver Age or, you know, well, Aquaman kind of skipped around from adventure to Aquaman. I won't get into it, but those three had their own books that continued on, that really did continue on. Yeah. From, I think that's where the, the Trinity comes from. They're the oldest characters or the, the longest living characters continuously. That's probably where it comes from originally. Yeah. It, yeah. It, I, I think you're right. I think you're right. They're the three with TV series. They're. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to jump ahead to something. I was rereading part of this book and part of these books just in preparation, and I came across a paragraph that took me back and basically summed up my entire role-playing experience with the first edition. I remember I mentioned I was about 12 or 13 at the time. My adventures were fairly juvenile when I, in the first edition, and I, I, I always played this one scenario with my buddy, and it all came from this one paragraph. There's a paragraph about running. It's called Running the Adventure. I'm sorry, not paragraph. There's a section called Running the Adventure in the Game Master's book on page 7. And I'm just going to read this real quick because this literally was almost every campaign or every adventure. So <laughs> keep, the, keep the game fun by keeping the players guessing. One Game Master created a villain called the Deceiver who fooled the heroes into thinking he was the Joker. The Deceiver even carried out his crimes just as the Clown Prince of Crime would have. When the characters moved in to capture the villain, they were totally unprepared for his illusions. Okay. Almost every single adventure I ran for my buddy Ravenface was the deceiver. Because <laughs> I, wa- I never wanted to settle into one character, so I'd always have him playing all these different characters. And my buddy always ended up playing Batman, and I always ended up playing, to, you know, tricked him. At the end, there was always, like, the big reveal. And why I ever thought it would be any surprise, because every time it was always the deceiver. And maybe that, maybe that was early on I wanted to run my own character rather than the penguin. I don't know. This, almost every adventure was based on that one paragraph. And did Ravenface actually have, was, was he surprised every time? I, or I can't, I, I can't remember. We were, <laughs> <laughs> probably, or at least he was, you know, pretended enough to be like, oh, he's a very uh, theatrical, funny guy. So, could yeah. have. I don't know. Some of the people who listen to the show know Ravenface. So, uh, they're probably uh, imagining the scenarios themselves. Yeah. Last section we didn't re- well, one oh, yeah. section we didn't really talk about was the whole, and eventually, and I, I think we, we can save that for later because uh, Mayfair eventually came out with an atlas of the DC universe that <sighs> talked about every city and it was, it's an awesome book and it deserves its own podcast, but it does 
it does exist in this. It, there's a very large section that prefigures the atlas with uh, maps of Gotham and Metropolis, and it talks about a lot. Well, most of the city, a lot of the cities where uh, DC's action takes place, and planets and times, and it, it goes around the, the whole DC universe. It's a nice section. It's not quite as nice as the Atlas will be, but I think the, the building blocks are there. I agree up to a point. There, there's one major problem with the the Atlas section of of the book here. I wonder what it is. <laughs> Not because we didn't possibly talk off air about it. <laughs> if if anyone here listens to, if anyone's still listening at this point, we're two hours into this thing. Uh, if anyone here listens to the Who's Who podcast, you know that myself and many of the listeners of the Who's Who podcast have sort of had enough of the Omega Men. They eat up a lot of bandwidth in the Who's Who issues that could be better dedicated to someone like Commissioner Gordon or whatever. And it just gets a little frustrating when each Omega Man gets a full page. It's just, uh, here, folks... The Game Master book in the Atlas section, the 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 vegan vegan whatever ga- the vegan galaxy system, gets five friggin' pages. There are more pages about the vegan galaxy than there are about all the superheroes. But remember, Shag, Shag, what if I want to know what the distance is between each of the worlds and their sun? The, the, the vegan sun and Rasha Shasha Moon. What, how, how do I know how far they are away from the sun if I don't have this? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. This is why you don't have statistics in the book for the Justice Society. Because they needed more pages for the vegan galaxy. Right. And you got yeah pages and pages about the planets. And then you've got, even got generic stats for each of the races. So a Branks warrior or a... An Okarin warlord, or or names I can't pronounce. I mean, the only maybe the Tamaranian scholar, maybe because the same race as Starfire. I have stopped listening to you, just so you know. Yeah, I know. (laughs) They they could have put Vibe and Vixen in here, and Steel and Gypsy. You know, who are headline. And let's be clear: the Omega Men don't have any stats. They're they're not here. It's just they're they're. Solar system. Ah! Makes me so mad. You know what? I would have preferred the outsiders in here to that. Don't blaspheme. (laughs) Well, um, one of the things I think we need to talk about here is what happened after Mayfair lost the license. Unless you have any other tidbits you want to hit on about about the first edition box set. No, no, let's go. Okay, well, the first edition box set, folks, beautiful piece. Absolutely love it. Now we're going to talk, uh, or Cisco is going to walk us through uh, what happened afterwards. We already said first edition, second edition, third edition. And third edition was really tail end. They came out with that edition at the last minute and the last hours of the license uh, because uh, the only very few products came out and not even everything that was announced had time to come out before the license expired or they, they simply stopped making the game. And then, uh, as you said, DC, um, well, well, for this system, Mayfair did come out with a, a strange game that was based on the, what's called the Megs system. That's what we call it. On the same system called Underground. Did you, did, have you ever seen the, this game? I own it. Oh, of course. So do I. <laughs> Here it is. So that, that, that was it. That was me flipping the pages. That was an expensive um, book because it was all oh, color. Yeah. It's, it's like slick and it's not, I thought it was closer. I, I mean, I've never played it. Obviously, it's one of those games I have. Don't play. Right. But um, 
I, I thought it was closer to the DC Hero system, especially since Mayfair came out with it at the same time they had the license for uh, DC Heroes, but it's really more of an adaptation. It uses some of the same ideas. It's about, if DC Heroes is about the DC Universe, Underground is about comics like Martial Law. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, it's there's been a big war, and uh, the world is full of war veterans with uh, cybernetic implants and powers, and, and I guess they're anti-heroes in a sense. So the character creation is similar. It's That's the closest thing probably, and it's got powers, and the, the AP scale isn't exactly exponential. There are no supermen in there. They're their lower level, uh, lower power level. But it's a similar system. I think it was maybe Mayfair trying to take ownership of their system, even though it was copywritten DC Heroes, uh, DC Comics. So that came out in the early 90s, just before they lost the license, or maybe just after. I'm not too sure about the timeline. But eventually, the rights to the system were taken up by one of the designers. And from there, uh, they... Re- isn't it that that's what it is, isn't it? And they, they published Blood of Heroes, which is basically the Meg system, the same system. And that had a few editions. I've got the latest. It's the 2000 edition. It's called Number Two, but it's, it's basically Blood of Heroes and the one source book they came out with. So it became Blood of Heroes eventually. Uh, and they added a lot of stuff to it. And there's a huge section on, you know, characters they invented for themselves because they can't use the DC universe. I've never read that section. <laughs> what does Meg stand for? Is it Mayfair Exponential Game System? Uh, is that what it is? I don't know. That's I, why I asked you. Yeah, we should have learned that before the, the podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I used to know, but I've got so many variations in my head. I, I think that's it's something like that. It'll work. Uh, here it is. Um, it's Mayfair's Exponential Game System. That's it. That's Woo-hoo! it. Meg's. So I can't say Meg's System. That doesn't make any sense. It's Mayfair's exponential game system already. The S system. Oh, I see. Yeah. So <laughs> only the, only uh, someone who's who's an English literature person and comes from another language would would be hyper focused on something like that. But yeah, well, you know, redundancy. So the <laughs> so Blood of Heroes still exists. I mean, it's still available. You can still sort of get it, uh, even though it's now like a thirteen-year-old, thirteen-year-old game. Although the rights to it are up in the air. DC Comics supposedly owns Megs, so they probably shouldn't have been able to publish Blood of Heroes. It's there's a little legal tangle there, but uh, I know there's still editions that exist, and so if, if people want to try to find and get it, they they can. But there's you, you, also you can get it. You can get it straight off Amazon, brand new. Oh yeah, you can still. Yeah, for uh, for blood of, was it Blood of Heroes version two or whatever it's called? Yep. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can still find the system in print uh, if that's the case. But uh, and it's basically the same. It's it's very much the same. If, if if you don't want the the DC stats or why wouldn't you? You know. Right. But there's all yeah. But there's also a lot of stuff that's been done online. Obviously, that's that's where it's it's happening. And there's a there's a website I should recommend, which is called writeups.org. So uh, without any um, hyphen, writeups.org, which is a fan community. It's Well, it's basically the result of a news group or email list uh, that I, I once participated in that, although I don't think I have any material on the writeups.org site, but they stat up characters from not just DC, but any universe. I mean, they've got pro wrestlers on there. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a really nice site. I'll post the link on my uh, on my blog 
so that you can find it easily. There's a nice little research. In, in fact, the guy that uh, takes care of it, uh, Sébastien Andrivet, is a Frenchie like me, although I suppose from Europe. He wrote me this week on a totally unrelated matter, so I made sure to tell him that we were uh, making a podcast, and then I'd mention it. Uh, <laughs> I was just going to mention, now, now they stay in touch with each other through a Yahoo group, right? Right, that's it. That's, that's where it started and then became a site. Uh, I think that's how it worked out. So the the, the news the, the Yahoo group for writeups.org has people submitting stats, discussing stats, you know, uh, rewriting stats. Uh, so there's a lot of discussion about you know getting a character exactly like uh, it should look in the and they all they always use the it really they're they're using Blood of Heroes. So there's some little system changes or little power name changes, uh, and you do use those. It's not first or second edition DCH. But if you're looking for <laughs> second edition DCH stuff, I, my own web page has a, way before I was a blogger, I started on a silly, overlong, impossible project where I, <laughs> I, opened up, I opened up my long boxes, just the DC Comics, and went from A to, well, A. I, I, I didn't get out of the A's. <laughs> but the idea was to write stats for each character as they appeared in my collection. So, Action Comics, Adventures of Superman, and I think I stalled at Adventure Comics because I hit Dial H for Hero. And I, oh, jeez. I really wanted to do each hero. So, um, You're nuts! Well, I, you know, I didn't complete it, so... You're obsessive-obsessive-compulsive. <laughs> obsessive, obsessive you know it, that, that's, and proud of it. So that, that's, that's, I started doing that, and that's how I met up with the people at writeups.org, because they were doing the same kind of project except better. Well, you know, I was, I wasn't using the latest, latest edition, basically. So that's, in a sense, that's what stopped me. And, you know, somebody else was doing it, was doing a good job of it. Uh, you know, why am I doing something that's possibly redundant? Uh, just to get stats for the mole, you know, a character that Superman beats in the first, in the splash page at the start of an action comics issue and, you know, we never hear from him again. Well, stats for that guy are there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you said it's an active group. Like, you're really downplaying that. Dude, th this Yahoo group has, like, on average, over 350 posts a month. Oh, no, it's uh, huge. A back and forth discussion. I mean, it's, I mean, a lot of that's going to be just dedicated to one write up, but I mean, it's, it's a really, really, to this day, for, for a role playing game that's been out of print for 13 years, is incredibly active. Believe it or not, before you and I met through this Mayfair crossover, I was aware of your site as far back as probably, well, I don't know where, was it up around 2001? Um, it's, it's around that time, yeah, that's when yeah. I was working on it, yeah. I became aware of your site back then because I was working on developing stats for my role-playing game. So, you know, and I'd go out there searching for what people had statted up to use as a basis. And I came across your site all the way back then. Yeah, I still get comments. It's still up. I mean, so sometimes I get comments and it's a little embarrassing. But um, <laughs> but uh, if, you, if you go to writeups.org and you look into the links that they suggest for other material, my, that site is there. And, you know, I think three links down is Firestorm Fan. I, because of the Mayfair. Um, yeah. Mayfair, because of the Mayfair Mayfair or whatever, yeah. They, they yeah. used a couple of my photos I had taken of my box sets, yeah. So it's pretty cool. It's really neat. I was honored to be included. Now, if people are looking for the, an original 
of the DC Heroes Mayfair first edition game, you, you can find ones out there in really good, quote-unquote, new condition. They're going to run you about 60 bucks. Uh, I've seen a lot of used ones in the $30 range. So they're out there, and if, well, if 30, nothing else... 30 to 60 is, I mean, it's, it's competitive with the current market. Yeah. I mean, you buy a new game, that's what it's going to... 30 bucks, you'd be... 30 bucks for this? Right. That's a really good deal today. I would say if you're looking for this as a piece of history or the beautiful art or you just want to experience it, that 30 to 60 bucks is, is a drop in the bucket, man. You're going to get a lot more enjoyment out of it than you will for that money. You know, that's, that's like what, two movies in the movie theater? You know, if you go to the IMAX thing versus hours, months of enjoyment out of this thing, it's worth it. Now, if you want it just for the game mechanics, uh, I would say save your money and spend it on second edition. Right. Yeah. Or third, if, if, if third is more easily, uh, more easy to find, because third no. is, bit, well, third is second. Third it, is crazy hard to find. Okay. Well, it, well, it's not surprising if it was really at the, the very end, you know, of the, of the cycle, they probably yeah. didn't print as many. But if that's the one you find, it's the same as second edition. I mean, second and third don't have any real mechanical changes. It's just, you know, you'll get stats for the four supermen. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. You do. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But it's, so. it's no major changes. Yeah. So there you go. That's so, it, man. So that's for, pretty much a yeah. For, for future episodes of the Hero Points podcast, our plan again it'll be fairly infrequently. We'll do a few a year, and you know what? If if there's a lot of people interested, maybe we'll do more. I don't know. Or if you know what? Quite frankly, we're not really doing this for y'all. We're doing this for us because <laughs> we just love it that much. Well, I, I know that there, there are some fire and water um, listeners out there that used to play and or play still or like it. I mean, the whole Mayfair of us. That's all. We're all, we're all the same people. Yeah. I mean, Frank's going to have something to say about this. I hope so. I, I, I hope we get a, a large bulleted list. We'll have to see. Because I don't know if he's much of a gamer or not. So. Well, he, well, I think he is. Yeah, he made a comment about DC Heroes on my blog recently. So Okay. There you go. Very cool. Well, future episodes, what we're going to do is we're going to just pick something that we want to talk about from the DC Heroes role-playing history. It may be one of the Mayfair games. It may be a Mayfair module. It might be a box set. It might be a, an addition of the role-playing, whatever. It might be the West End game system. Some piece from there. It might be from the Green Ronin, the new version that's out. I don't know. So we're leaving it wide open. It's going to be kind of what strikes our fancy. Also, if you guys want to recommend we cover something, feel free to send us feedback. And you can send us, as, as we said earlier, you can send us comments or questions at firewaterpodcast.com. Dot, I'm sorry, firewaterpodcast at comcast.net. Uh, you can also shoot us something through the social medias. Just be sure to use the hashtag FWPodcast. Now, uh, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter and Google Plus and Tumblr and Instagram, all as FirestormFan. So feel free to send me a message through there. Siskoid, where can they um, find you? Well, I'm, I'm Siskoid on Twitter. I'm, I'm, well, I'm on Google Plus, but. Um don't look for my real name. And, <laughs> uh, and of course, well, I, the best place is always Cisco's blog of geekery, which is ciscoid.blogspot.com. Awesome. And please also visit aquamanshrine.com. Well, Rob's not here. He's with us in spirit, and it's certainly a very worthwhile site uh, about a guy who talks to yeah, fish. Just so. don't, don't tell him we said the things we said. Because <laughs> there's no way he's listened this far. It'd be like a Legion of Superheroes podcast. He wouldn't get through that either. So, <laughs> And, again, be sure to visit fireandwaterpodcast.tumblr.com for some, some images from this box set. And with that, thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.
Keep let's the flame, roll the dice. Yeah, there it is. Uh, let's roll. Let's roll, there. Let's roll. 